Right, we're rolling. But if I walk into, say, Costa Coffee... I'm on edge because I don't know. Come on, edge! Mrs. Collins has been on, and it sounds oh. to me like there might be some changes needed around Kelsey Collins. Well, I think it's very perceptive of Johnny to realise that stubbornness is coming from anxiety. Right. Um, and when we're anxious, we try and control things and kind of stay within, you know, quite limited boundaries. I can tell you as a gay man that the type of sex I'm having, I, uh, sometimes it's just not practical to have that kind of sex every day. Um, so, <laughs> you know. As it stands now, how many employees have you got? I'd, I'd say, nah. So we are, we we disagree with this. So I, I like I count on like the part. <laughs> how the is this for tax reasons? <laughs> oh, no, no. I was going to say, which member of the team is the least fashionable? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> In a fashion business, a Johnny. Before, have you? Oh, you haven't had that on a podcast <laughs> before. I say it's through him. It was mostly through my girlfriend. She um one of those people that's made a social media account for the dog so I speak about that quite a bit because like she did it in secret she didn't tell me about it because she knew I wouldn't like it so <laughs> one day I just got like people you may know and it's my dog and I was like <laughs> I did you him. follow it did you follow it back I didn't at first I was just like what is somebody made there's somebody like <laughs> like you know made a fraudulent record <laughs> yeah of our dog stand by here comes your summer Johnny. We're on, are we? We're on. We are on. Here we go. Yes, as, summer as refreshed. We like to say, welcome. Welcome. Summer refreshed. Episode three. Three. Um, three. Three out of six, man. This is episode three mm-hmm. uh, with myself and uh, Mr. Graham Smith. It's a magazine-style podcast, which, as you know, can basically mean anything. But in this episode, it means that we will have a relationship expert, our very own relationship expert, Val, is going to be on the show giving her uh, relationship advice, which isn't really something we need, but you might be listening to this thinking, do you know what? I might need it. So, well, you're saying, you, are you saying, you don't, oh, you don't know, you don't, okay, you don't need it then. I don't need it, but you could be listening to this on holiday and going, do you know what, looking left or right, going, this holiday's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have come on this holiday. I'm always open to a bit of relationship advice. I think I still need it. I don't think I've got it right. I mean, you sound like you've got it all sorted there. Well, got it, yeah, you got it, it all sounds sorted. like you're going to tell me something different. Well, only well, 60 months into a marriage. Mrs. Collins has been on, and it sounds oh, to me... Has she been on? Go on. Um, it's actually oh, no, a, really lot has of, been on. a lot of chat there. <laughs> and okay. it sounds to me like there might be some changes needed around Kessa Collins. Ask changes? Me. Well, oh. I've got a few... Uh, few good points, a few bad points. I've been doing my homework here. Uh, so I've been okay, on to Melissa on. for these. You want me to spoil your dinner? I'll spoil well, it because I was going to use them. You can't say that and then not say anything, can you? You've got to like, you've, you can't just right. drop a bomb and then move on. All right. Okay. Well, apparently you're very good around the house. Kind of guessed. I kind of guessed that. Yeah. A little bit of Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> well, the suckers are available. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another one was, you pretend that you don't know how to make tea and coffee, therefore has never made a brew. I thought, oh, right, you do it in your relationship as well as in your professional life. Because yeah. I just thought I've never seen you ever, you have never made a brew. And you used to get round it by going, oh, I don't like tea and coffee. Yeah, but I think that's a fair excuse. If you don't drink tea or coffee, if I walk into, say, Costa Coffee, I'm on edge because I don't know. <laughs> on edge! I don't know what's going on. <laughs> what, like, even what size to ask for or blend or you get you get anxious in costa taunted by the the, the hot beverages if someone you know if you're like in an office and you go oh like 
not that this would ever happen, but some people would go out and do a nice coffee run and stuff and go to, you know, said coffee shop. Mm-hmm. But I'd be like, I have no, and people just go, oh yeah, just, you know, latte, yeah, yeah, frothy milk, whatever. I don't know. Like, no, you've got to write it down. It needs to be like Subway. I need to know what size cup, yeah. what I'm asking for, uh, what blend. Johnny, or- are you just anxious around the ordering process of hot drinks and this is why you've, you've excluded them from, because I think you're missing out. I always thought this when you never had a hot brew. I always thought, he's missing out in life. And more on this to come. We'll unpack more of this. Do you want a very quick confessional? Because I've been, it can be a creative confessional if you want. Shall, we, shall I get the booze out? Get the booze out, get the Fetch organ the out. booze. And the organist. Sit yourself down, love. So. How's the seat? Uh, the seat is the seat is comfy. Is it warm? Very warm. Someone's been sat there. Yeah. Like anyway. when you inherited a warm toilet seat. Nothing. The, oh my God. Oh, that is the, that you know what? Me where? Ah, oh, you sit down oh. and I'm always like, who's been sat here? For hours. <laughs> yeah, to warm it up that much. Anyway, sorry. It was you that was in the seat. I've been creative. Have you heard of an NFT? Yeah, yeah. I've made an NFT for us. <laughs> What have you done? I don't know why. I Really, I probably should show you this. Come here, um, yeah. So an NFT is a non-fungible token, which is basically a digital piece of artwork. So if you were to go and buy a painting for the sake of argument, obviously you'd get it from an auction house and it would be very verified in the same way if you had a signed football shirt. There's that certificate of sort of authenticity. In NFT, you can own something digital. So someone spent a lot of money on the first ever tweet and owns the rights to that digital piece of history, the first ever tweet what sent. What so did it I, say? Do you know what it said? I think it's just, I've just signed for my Twitter or just signed up to Twitter, which is... Just setting up my TWTTR. Yeah. TWTTR, there 2. you go. $2.9 million. And wow. with an NFT, you can kind of put a percentage in there. So if it gets sold and it moves on from one person to another, the original person who bought it in the first place or created it, um, we'll get a percentage of that value. So if it sells for a million pounds and you've got 10%, you've got a hundred grand basically there for nothing. I thought I'd make an NFT just for a bit of a laugh. Here it is here. So it's called 55,000 feet. So this is available to see. Uh, it's on OpenSea, which is one of the big sort of um, marketplaces for NFT work. Um, and it's it's a little bit weird, but I was kind of thinking, okay, well, I'll try and come up with something. What's based so on feet? Well, it's based on a bit of pitter-patter because, of course, if you have a child, and bear with me on this. <laughs> Where is he going? I've really gone in depth with this. Um, really kind of try and tap into a market. <laughs> the average cost, if you have a, a child, kind of aged between about 15 to 17, mm-hmm. uh, within that time, it's quite an expensive time with Broms, with going on holidays, with things changing from being a child to an adult price and things like that. The average cost of raising is around about £55,000 between those sort of two to three years. Uh, uni fees or anything like that. So here's my artwork. This is what I've created. Can you see that? Yeah, I thought you were going to be um, confessing something here. Like you've used it as an well, opportunity. He spun this into an opportunity to sell his artwork. <laughs> And it like is it's a workable graphic. It does actually like move and stuff. Oh, it does move, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's <laughs> it's 50, odd, isn't it? Yeah. Plus and what does it mean? So it was a plus and a minus at the top, fifty five point zero 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 in the middle. A few dollar yep. signs at the side. We're gonna have to get this up on the screen. Two two fifty p's. There's actually quite uh, a lot of thought gone into this, Johnny. Yeah, not, I I thought yeah, it was gonna so be awful. 
Uh, no, I am <laughs> sorry <laughs> to say. <laughs> it's going to be awful. Well, you won't be saying because it, it's on for Ethereum. It's one of the cryptocurrencies, and I put it on for fifty-five. Which, if this sells, will get me ninety-one thousand dollars. Oh, uh, right. So now you're interested, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fifty-five yeah. Ethereum. So fifty-five. Ethereum basically works out at $91,000. The thing about yep. these cryptocurrencies like Ethereum is they're jumping up and down all the time. Like It's like yeah. it's like going to the shop with a fiver and then going, oh no, the cost of that um, bottle of Coca-Cola has, has shifted by uh, £2. And you're like, well, what am I going to do here? It, like, yep. From what I gather, it shifts up and down. So It shifts up and down. It's one of the ones which has held its value fairly okay around about Bitcoin. So one Ethereum is worth... At at the time of recording, about 1,200 quid, give or take. But that's my artwork, so that's my well confessional. Very we'll good. put a link to it. Lovely. You can have a little look at it, and there you go. If you want to make us an offer, then I don't know, if it can be allowed to say if you want to make us an offer? I don't know, I guess so, because it's out there. Well, hang on, I'll let you say that as long as I'm given a cut of the okay. 55 you Ethereum. Cut of the 55. I kind of think it's you've got a confession, but I don't think you'll be able to beat that unless you've just... <clears throat> All of a sudden, recreated a you know a Picasso. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be able to that. I wouldn't be able to to beat that. No, no, my confessions are all about things I've done wrong. A lot of people might look at that artwork and say that's very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Should we move on to our first guest? Because uh, I'm really excited about her. By the way, I'm really uh, excited because normally you have to pay to sit through. What's the average rate for one of these people? It's like hundred pounds a session or something, isn't it? So- I think it'd be fairly high. Yeah, it'd be a pretty penny, but you know, it might be might be doable for some people. Shall we chat to her then? Val is our, uh, she's a relationship expert. She does this for a living. And uh, me and Johnny are going to be going through where we're going right and wrong in our relationships. Um, she's lovely. Let's have a listen. Summer refreshed. You think of summer, you think of love, you think of relationships, and you kind of go, sometimes you need a little bit of help in a relationship. And we thought we'd bring in our relationship expert. Please give it up for the lovely Val Sampson's on the show. <laughs> Good morning. Val, welcome to Summer Refreshed. How are you? I am good this morning on a glorious sunny day. Well, I was going to say, well, this is it. So Val is in uh, just outside Edinburgh. I'm in Edinburgh. Graham is in Liverpool, um, which tends to have more sun than what we have. (laughs) Just about, just by the skin of its teeth. Just to set it up. So Val is our relationship expert on Summer Refreshed. Val's a relationship counsellor and couples coach. She's written for various publications such as The Times, The Eye newspaper, done TV, radio, podcasts. Maybe at the end of it, Val, you'll figure out that this one might be better than the ones you've done or no work close. Uh, <laughs> do you want to give us a little bit of a background in kind of what your day-to-day involves? Yeah, certainly. Well, I work mainly with couples, not exclusively with couples, actually, sometimes with individuals who are either struggling in their relationship or who are looking for a relationship, actually, or have just come out of one. So I'm working, if you like, from the beginning, the middle, and sometimes I work to couples, well, quite often I work with couples who think they're at the end. But actually, it turns out they're not at the end. They're actually at the beginning of a new kind of relationship. So some of what I do is about rebuilding somebody's previous relationship that they think has fallen apart. And we build it in a better, build back better. Oh, my goodness, I'm sounding like Trump. But we do Knock try down them walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when someone reaches out for help, and obviously I know there's a lot of confidentiality, what of course goes with this, but are you finding that you, you might have someone who's just a, couple of say months or years in sort of the infancy of a relationship or is most advice a couple of years down the line who have been together 5, 10, 15, 20 years and and, and plus? Yeah sometimes 30 years actually. What I find is with older couples and by older I probably mean dare I say it 40 plus 
they tend to hang <laughs> on for a lot longer before they actually get help. People 14 under, certainly 13 under, get help much quicker. And as in anything, you know, when a problem starts to develop, if you can kind of nip it in the bud, you know, you, you get much better results. So quite often I work with younger people for shorter amounts of time. And older people, sometimes the work is quite long and quite complex. Why is it long and complex? Is it because they've been together so long? So just yeah, well, well, one of my interests um, is neuroscience and how our brains work. And, and what we now know, which we've sort of always thought as, as therapists, but now we can kind of do MRI scans and literally see how the brain works, is that we have kind of neural patterns that become quite set. And the older you are, the more set those patterns become. And if you're in a relationship where things aren't working, it can become almost habitual. So what we have to do is kind of reprogram our brains. That sounds a bit sort of technical, but it's also emotional as well, um, to, to create new, much healthier, more helpful patterns for the relationship. And the older you are, the more challenging that can be. You know, people say, oh, you're set in your ways. It just means your neurons are set in their ways. Having said that, the good news, I feel I should throw in a bit of good news at the moment, um, <laughs> is that we now know our brains stay plastic, i.e. capable of change, until really quite late in old age. So there is hope for everybody. Val, is there a stigma attached to only, you know, anyone who reaches out and does that initial first way of speaking to you or anyone within that sort of couple's relationship field? Do you find that there is a bit of a a stigma sort of almost asking for help. If you can get over that first hurdle, then is everything else quite easy after that? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that is something that is changing. So I've been doing this work for a very long time. And I would say stigma was much more prevalent 20 years ago than it is now. So I would say it's probably older people who are a little bit more hesitant, who feel that, you know, they should be sorting this out themselves. Or But actually, you know, we all need help sometimes. And, and I think the good thing is, and it's a really good thing, um, through all sorts of mainly media, you know, thanks to you guys, people are finding it much more acceptable to think, hang on, this isn't right. Let's talk to somebody and, and get a result with them. I know from personal experience, I won't say who, but someone who's uh, gone through a divorce and has been divorced and moved on for a, for a very long time. There's a stigma attached there that there's still blame. There's blame because of that person going leaving and i've turned around and said i don't think that's right because if you've done it and you've moved on you've moved on for those reasons you can't go back in the past and you're clinging on to it almost kind of makes it feel to me in a nutshell that almost it wasn't worth it if if you have kind of got regret over not regret doing it but the guilt is still there if you can shred that guilt then you can free yourself from something it's almost okay to to say that's okay does that make sense it makes absolute sense and i would say that you're your friend is the prime candidate to do a bit of work with a therapist because mm. if they are struggling to move on, if they made a decision, they're struggling to move on. It suggests that they've got some unresolved stuff they just need to think through and get a bit of clarity on. Yep. Um, and often with divorce, I mean, it's right to bring the tone down, guys, so the mood down. But no, not at all. I'm trying, to work out, I'm trying to work out who he's talking about because I, I know if he's, I'm like... Oh, oh, yeah. Place your bets now, and I'll let you know at the end of the chat. <laughs> Sorry, Val. It's not sorry. me, by the way. It's no. definitely not me. <laughs> sorry, Val, you were saying. <laughs> Just sort of briefly, when, when people divorce, and obviously I actually don't spend much time in the area of divorce because my work is about rebuilding and reconnecting people. But sometimes I might work with somebody who is in a new relationship, but they've gone through a divorce. To some degree, a process of loss, even if it's a loss that you've chosen. 
So you have to get your head around it. And there are various things that you can do um, in therapy that actually help you to, to move forward. And if someone's struggling now, Val, from having a rocky patch or due to a life change, be it a bereavement, what would you advise in a nutshell before seeking a therapy side of, of events? You know, if they can sort of strip things back, what advice would you give? Well, if you are just struggling in the relationship and feeling like this is not going well, and thinking about going, I think the first thing you have to do is be honest, but be honest in a way that isn't blaming or accusatory. So if you sit down with somebody and go, the relationship's rubbish and it's all your fault, it's not going to get you anywhere. But I think you can sit down with your partner and say, our relationship isn't making me happy. I can't imagine it's making you happy either. Can we have a chat about what we think we could do differently? And that's just a starting point. And it might be, should we reach out and, and get some help for this? Or are there just some things we can do on a daily basis, which is a lot about being kinder to each other, actually. I think it was the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. And we often forget in relationships how we stop being kind to our partner. You know, we're lovely to the lady down the street or the, the person at work, but we're not kind to the person that we live with. One of the things that, that I talk about with my clients is the way that we now know, and this is thanks to neuroscience, that behavior changes feeling. We used to think in the old days that in order to get on with somebody, we had to have those nice, loving feelings, and then we'd be lovely to them. What we actually know is that if you act in a loving way towards somebody, it starts to generate positive feelings for you and for them. So, I mean, an example I can give to clients is that, you know, often at work, you're, you might be taught how to do, say, presentation skills. You know, you have to stand up in front of a meeting and talk. And the people who teach you that, the first thing they say is act confident. You know, act, act okay. Nine times out of ten, people will say about the third of the way into doing what you've been told to do, you feel confident. Your brain supplies the confident feeling. So just remember, this works in relationships too. Acting in a loving and caring way supplies the loving and caring feeling. So if, if they're not there, kindness is a good way to trigger positive feelings. I guess the reward when you see someone changing on a weekly or a monthly or bi-weekly kind of period when you're seeing them, I guess that just is the, the most, it's probably a huge lift for you despite doing it for, for so long. I guess you're never going to rid yourself of that thrill from helping. Yeah, it, it's great. And I actually see it within my sessions. Sometimes we, we, we're in quite a sticky moment and something shifts and they both look at each other and they laugh and one person will just reach out and put their hand on their partner's knee. And it's, it's really great because you think, oh, this is, this is change happening in the moment. You know, this is really, really positive. Oh, I sound like I'm really kind of blowing my own trumpet here. But it's no, blow away. <laughs> I always say to clients, you know, it's lovely when they say nice things about our work. But they are the people who have actually put into effect all the things we've spoken about. And, I, and I'm just delighted for them that they, that they end up with a good result. Something I thought I'd add to this, I don't know if you agree with this, is when you go into therapy or couples counselling, you have to accept that one thing might be the case. And some people haven't thought about this before they go in. And that thing is that the problem might be you. <laughs> and I, I've been in these situations and I was like, oh, we're going to get all this sorted out. Come on, let's go to the counter and sat there and I've gone, oh God, I think it's, it's me. Would you agree on that, that you have to accept that some of the responsibility is going to ultimately lie upon your shoulders and you've got to kind of relax around that or you're not going to get any further? Absolutely. Because, you know, we are all 
flawed, fragile human beings doing our best. And quite often we get it wrong. Everybody does. I get it wrong in session. Sometimes I say the wrong thing and I have to go, I'm sorry, I, that wasn't very well thought through, you know, and, and, and apologise. And, and, and occasionally, just from what you're saying, Graham, sometimes I do have couples and one person sits there almost literally pointing at their partner going, can you sort them, please? Do you think, do you think you can fix this one? You know, it's a bit of a challenge. Sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> a relationship is made up of two parts, you know, and, and there'll be things that, that you do really well and things your partner does really well, things you don't do so well. In this day and age, don't want to maybe go down a huge hole here of social media pros and cons because there's an awful lot of pros and an awful lot of cons. But do you think this sort of way that you have to look or feel or act just to kind of fit in, surely that's doing a lot of damage for relationships, not only from um, a couple's point of view, if we recently got together, you see it all the time, catfishing, someone looks like they should do, and then they go and meet someone in a bar and it's like wandering around going, hang on, is that the person who, who I should be meeting <laughs> because they look totally different? I mean, I think there are two things about social media, actually, which are challenges that we will we'll kind of take all the good things. There are lots of good things about it. Um, I think the two downsides, and one is the amount of time that people spend on it and the fact that, you know, in a lot of relationships, it's you, me and our phones. And actually, that is quite often with my clients, we do something called, or I suggest they do a no-tech evening, where you actually turn your phone off at seven. Sorry, (laughs) (laughs) You turn your phone off at seven and you don't put it on till 11 at night. Ideally, you go from seven p.m. to 7 a.m., but that's, I can, that's way too much for most people. So 7 to 11, and the only thing you can use your phone for is to play music, and you don't have the telly on either. And you just have an evening where you talk, you can play games, whatever it is, you interact with each other. And the first time I suggested this was a long time ago, and I, I was working with a client whose job it was to create games for people on their phone. So as you can imagine, he was on his phone the whole time. But it was really a block in the relationships. And they came back the next week and I went, how did it go? And they went, we've done it three times. It was amazing. We sat out in the garden till 11 o'clock at night with a bottle of wine and we had the best time. So, But they didn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, first of all, think about what part of uh, your relationship does your phone affect? And, and just be a little bit thoughtful about that. So, And how much time do you spend fully focusing on your partner and how much time do you spend with your phone in your hand going, yep, yep, scroll, scroll, scroll. Yeah, that's true. Because as human beings, what we're hardwired for is connection with another person. We're not, our brains have not yet evolved to get all the things we need to make us feel good and happy and calm and relaxed from a phone. We, it, it just doesn't work. We need that from other humans. Domesticity squashes couple relationships is one of my kind of phrases so well because when you're together in the house you start a conversation either somebody picks up their phone hence the no tech evening or somebody goes well I'll just put this washing on or I'll just um take the bins out or whatever it is is to create a little bit of um time for them light a candle when you when you have dinner together it's a really simple thing to do just a little tea light but as humans we are hardwired to gather around the campfire and tell stories so that's, that's a really long answer to, your first, to the first thing I said about social media. I think the, the other thing is when we're on social media is the sense of, of what is always become a phrase now, a colleague of mine used it a lot, which is compare and despair. It's mood lowering. 
it's very rare we spend time looking on other people's social media and we kick off and feel better about ourselves. And for some people, it's almost, I'd say, a form of self-harm. Think what your mood is before you start scrolling. If you're happy and you've just got 10 minutes in the coffee shop and, you know, fine. But if your evenings are spent for two or three hours on socials. Obviously, you're not having that face-to-face contact because one's on a phone or the other person is. Um, yeah. And you're scrolling through. You are going to go from one extreme to the other because you'll see something that is a, is a negative about current news situation or maybe it's a, about a friend who you used to work with who's going through a bad time or whatever that might be. But two posts down from that, you might see the success of looking back to the Euros and the success the girls had, anything like that. It's up and down. It's con- yeah. constantly comparing yourself against everyone's best versions as well, isn't it? And that's, it's really hard because like, we can't all look great all the time. I looked on my, I showed my dad this the other day. So I'll look on my, on my discover thing on, on Instagram. He looked at the sort of stuff that was coming. What do you think comes up in my discover thing, Johnny? Uh, lots of topless you. men. Yes, it's loads of men who I, who I don't look like. And there you go. So I'm just sort of comparing myself to that. And do you know what was really unhealthy I was seeing the other week? An advert came up, somebody looked great. And he's like, hey, oh, don't worry, ch- training your chest. Why don't you just get pec implants like me? And he's going, the key to this is surgery. And I just thought, I'm all of a sudden understanding how teenage girls in particular can end up feeling really depressed here. Like my boobs aren't big enough. Maybe my face is what I had to get fillers and they're like 20 and... Yeah, it really is a, it can be really negative scrolling through Instagram sometimes, that comparative, like, I just don't match up thing, I think, anyway. I think that the, the saddest thing that people forget is that it's, although it's two-dimensional, so although you're, you're seeing people, sort of 3D people, you're seeing it in a two-dimensional form, and therefore you're not getting a true sense of what's going on. So you're, we're all 3D people, you know, where if you want to see what people look like, go to a swimming pool. that's what people look like all shapes and sizes young old you know uh, all different races that that's the world when you see a a filtered version which is what you're you're given it's not designed to enhance your mood even if you just start by just cutting back a little bit on the social i guess on that note speaking about moods so if you're listening to summer refresh now we're recording this and it's 11 30 in the morning when we're speaking to val on a monday Um, I think it's always important to say it's Monday morning. Which I reckon it is a good time to talk about sex. That's uh, that's what I like to do at 11.30 on a Monday morning. Um, in an so, ideal world. Yeah. In an ideal world when we're obviously not recording. Uh, <laughs> now, I guess really, Val, in a weird way, I've kind of sort of done it myself here by sort of having a bit of a laugh about the subject of sex and what have you. To give a bit of background, Val has had a load of publications out, but three out of the four books you've written are very much about sex, aren't they, Val? So. It's yeah. the art of mind-blowing sex. There's a sex handbook, how to have great sex for the entirety of your life. How important is the subject that I think the younger you are, the easier it is to talk about. Um, older generations probably has that little bit of a stigma. For me, being close to 40 yards, you're kind of in the middle of that, maybe going... Johnny, is that how old you are? Yes, I know I don't look it. You um, don't look it. Oh, Johnny's nearly 40. Well, I'm 38. 38. Thank you, Val. We'll uh, make sure you put an extra zero on the invoice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Johnny, when I get when I get to that age in about ten years, um, (laughs) I'll I'll stop lying. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) ten months, isn't it? (laughs) How important is that, Val, to sort of be around and sort of say, right, whatever the age, if you're forty odd or you're eighteen, 
or 70, talking about sex and, and maybe not laughing about it in a relationship? Does that form a key part of the advice or the areas that you focus on? Is that quite a big area? It's, it's a really important area, but it's an area that usually I work with at kind of the end of, 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 of couple counselling because in short-term relationships, if you're just having a fling, obviously you have a lot of sexual chemistry with somebody, you know, you get on, you have sex with them, you, you're done. In, in a long-term relationship, after about 18 months to three years, those sort of chemical hormones wear off. And then sex becomes, uh, and, and there's all sorts of interesting theories about why that happens, but you know, that in lust part of the relationship diminishes. Basically what you're left with then is a reflection, your sex life is then a reflection of what's going on in the rest of your relationship. So if you're grumpy with your partner, if you're not having any fun, but basically when is the last time you went out and saw each other just as sexy attractive adults, as opposed to the person who pays the mortgage with me, the person who takes the bins out, the person who moans when I leave a wet towel on the floor. You know, when did you actually see each other just as adults? When you're only relating to each other as um, flatmates, that usually means that your sexual link starts to diminish. And it's only when you start to connect with each other as independent, attractive people. It's really interesting. A lot of people have sex at weddings. And the reason why I've come to the conclusion Well, not is the bride that and the groom, other people. Other people, other people. Weddings are a big sex fest because you're all dressed up. <laughs> you, so everybody's made an effort because quite often in long-term relationships, people just stop making an effort. You know, you mm -hmm. think of when you're dating, you're buying a new shirt, you're getting your hair cut, you know, girls are waxing, getting blow-dries, whatever it is. All of that diminishes. We stop presenting our best sexy self to our partner. At a wedding, everybody's made the effort. Everyone's looking at their best. Often we're meeting people we don't know. So we're seeing our partner interact and we're not necessarily standing beside them. And I remember once, I always remember this, a client of mine saying, I looked across the room and I saw my husband and I thought, God, who's that attractive man? And then I thought, oh my God, it's my husband. You know, you just have that different perception. And when there's a little bit of difference, a little bit of separation. Is it almost like a little bit of kind of very small amount of jealousy, do you think? Almost kind of can be a little bit of a help in that situation because you're almost looking at someone going, oh, hang on, like, who is that? Hang on, get him away from the bloody best man. That's my wife, you know, and then you're walking over and <laughs> you're being you make gently a joke. cuckolded. Is this what you're suggesting? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Entry level. This might be your story, Johnny. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know what? No, I get, I'm not coming out of this chat very well at all. I think, uh, you've got a good divorce lawyer at the back of this, Val. If you can give us a name and enough for that, that'd be great. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I mean, that hasn't happened, to be fair. Um, my wife and I, we've only been married for about 16 months, give or take. and uh, been oh. together for almost seven years, Val. So, um, but we haven't actually been at an event as kind of husband and wife. We haven't really been... Uh, anywhere to get dressed up again since our wedding and our wedding was 30 guests it was extremely scaled back due to covid and dates being moved a couple of times and it kind of was third time lucky there's times where i'm guilty of it i will think of something in my head and and know that melissa looks absolutely amazing and gorgeous but probably doing what you were saying were i'll just turn around and go all right baby you're nearly ready yeah come on then i'll just take the bin out <laughs> uh, and you do you, you know and then you sort of you walked in you've seen it you thought something amazing 
but you've turned around and got the bin from the bathroom and waiting in the living room to say, okay, well, come on then, let's go and get a drink. And maybe people should be saying something out loud straight away. Would you, would you sort of say that's a, a real key thing to, to keep that bubble going? Absolutely. And because I, I think, I hate to say, I mean, a bit gender stereotypical here. It's usually men. Um, I, I don't know, Graham, if you would agree with this, that often think something, but don't necessarily articulate it. I know, and it's, yeah, I'm terrible for that. Yeah. yeah. I'll think yeah. it looks gorgeous. And then I'm like, Telling me looks gorgeous. Authentic compliments just makes everything speed along so much better. When we share a positive feeling that we have with our partner about them, it's a wonderful thing to do. It's really worth it. I sometimes say to my clients, you know, try a compliment a day. It might be you look gorgeous or it might be you're great to have around. Giving some positive energy to the relationship, which is what, you know, you telling Melissa that she looked amazing. That's what it would have done. You can do it next time. Though. Have you heard of the language? You, you must have done the, the languages of love thing. I got ta- taught about this and it turns out me and Steve did it to work out work because all couples, especially lockdown, just he was working from home and we just round each other 24 seven. Someone suggested we do the languages of love thing to work out what our primary language is. And mine, it turns out is words of affirmation. It really does a lot for me and I need it. I feel loved. If you say to me, you look beautiful. I love you something in me is, is get a need fulfilled by that for whatever reason and steve's is a completely different one it turns out steve's his acts of service if steve makes you dinner that's his way of showing you look or sorting out everything or doing the thing say everything in the house because he does like diy and stuff that's his way of saying look i love you i did the thing i did the service for you and i wasn't viewing it like that because the way I, the way i interpret the way my needs are a bit more predisposed to us being told i look lovely or that you love me and what we realized is that we both needed to be aware of them things so that when he did something like that i come in the house after work and instead of going this is me who will come in the fucking m62 was murder you know <laughs> oh this person's got uh, come in and just say oh dinner looks lovely thank you for that and then yeah. he was a happier person as a result of it and just through get you can find it languages of love google it if anyone's listening is interested, it's, I found that really interesting. It's really help, helpful to people because what we tend to offer them is the thing that we like. Yeah. And you know, often it's just missing the mark. It's like, well, okay, so you think I look great, but look, look at this house I spent cooking this meal. I'd really like you to acknowledge it. What's meaningful to you? If I think it's gifts, spending time together, acts of service, words of affirmation, or physical affection. Most people are actually a combination of got two or three, but for some people it is, that's my one. That's what I really like. The bottom of that? all of them for me was gifts. Yeah. Me and him was gifts. And we both looked at each other and went, oh, thank God for that. That's safe to support you. It's quite interesting that sort of we haven't really talked about money. You know, everything what's kind of been said, I know if it's a date night, it's going to involve a nice bottle of wine or it might end up with a meal deal for £15 at a supermarket, something where it's still attainable. That's the thing, isn't it? It's quite interesting to think that actually money shouldn't be the root of a relationship actually stripping it right back it's love it's affection it's being kind it's mentioning some things and like you say gifts should be the ones where it's nice to receive one and probably give one but it shouldn't be the be all and end all well i think the thing about gifts is that we automatically think of something you know expensive and um significant but for people who say who gifts are that they're their top rather than at the bottom that might just be my favorite bar of chocolate or a magazine that you know I like. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, we've got to go out and you've got to get me tickets to go to New York. (laughs) 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 We're a little bit on edge about it, um, you know, just because we don't know what's actually been said. But 
I have reached out to Graham Stephen. Stephen has texted me a couple of little snippets about Graham. A couple? I thought it was uh, just no, well, one. He did actually say, am I only restricted to one comment? And I said, look, I said, we can't speak to Val for five hours. We just can't do it. We can't, she's got a life to live. We've all got, you know, a lunch to have today. We've got to go to work. So we're going to come on to that. And of course, it's worked the same as well. Graham has reached out to Melissa and Melissa has texted an essay about how much she loves me from all accounts. But before we come on to that, Val, just on a serious note, if someone is listening to Summer Refresh now and thinks, do you know what? Is this relationship I'm in beyond repair? Do I need to look at either exiting a relationship for various reasons or how do I maybe fix this? And if you're at the end of the tether and you think, do you know what? I can't continue like this for me or my partner. What would you sort of say if they sort of think something is beyond repair? Well, if it's genuinely beyond repair, then you have to sit down and end it. People say, oh, you're a relationship counsellor, you just want to keep everyone together. And the answer is no, that's not the case. You know, if, if somebody's in a coercive, controlling relationship, they should get out. If you're in a violent relationship, you should leave. Having said that, that's a lot harder than I'm making it sound, actually. But I have worked with people to leave those kind of relationships. Probably if you're thinking, I don't think there is anything left for me, it might be worth actually talking to a couple counsellor just to make sure because sometimes it's amazing how how relationships can shift and change um you know sometimes people go what's it people don't change but actually if if I thought people didn't change I would have the worst job in the world (laughs) because I'd be constantly banging my head against a brick wall and actually I think I've got the best job because I see people changing hugely and often um if if However, if you've gone beyond that, then you have to be honest and say, we have to find a way to take this apart. This is more my opinion and experience than anything else. I've been in two relationships that became violent. I have quite a few, I have a few boyfriends on the spin. I was in a big relationship, then five in a row, and then Steve. Um, and I've been with Steve for like seven years, eight years or something like that. If you're in a violent or coercive relationship, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because you're sort of conditioned to think that so I was in a relationship with someone who I was very much, like I said, two relationships, I was very much in love with that person and they physically attacked me, but I still loved them afterwards. And if you just say to me, you're going to have to end this relationship, it would have killed me. But I was wear- physically wearing the scars at times. You know, I'd be punched in the face and stuff like that. How do you know when, is it one strike and you're out if someone's violent? I know the answer is probably yes, but in the real world, or is it not? Is it more complex than that? What, what, what's your advice around that specifically? I think exactly, you know, as you say, Graham, that that it would be so much easier if it was one strike and you're out. But I think the difficulty is often when there's physical violence, there's also emotional manipulation. Yeah. And the emotional manipulation makes you feel that you are dependent on that person. And that feeling of dependency may feel like love. And I think the other thing as well is that quite often people in that situation can flip and then can be very remorseful, very apologetic, try and make you feel super special until it then happens again. So I would say if you are in that situation, reach out to other people, talk to your friends, talk to your family, because one of the other impacts of being in that relationship is often you become quite isolated from all your friends and family, either because you you worry that they'll say negative things about your partner or your partner starts to sort of almost, sometimes it is actually very deliberate, try and move you away from those people. So if the first thing you do is just reach out to a family member who you trust or a friend that you trust and just talk to them and say, no judgment, I just want to talk about this. You just get an avenue to hear 
to know that you are you ought to have support if you were to leave because also sometimes people don't leave because they don't really know what their life is going to look like without this person you have to start thinking and when i've worked with people in that situation we work to create a life they will step into before they actually leave it's really interesting the way you said that love being really dependent on someone can feel a lot like love yeah. it's not love is it how can you tell the difference between the two think about how does this person make me feel all the time not just some of the time yes. do i feel safe do i feel secure do i feel like when i look at them across the room i think you're great or do i think i hope they're in a good mood tonight i better not mention it oh oh that's all right they seem to be okay just look for those little signs if you're starting what if you see to that in yourself, what would you suggest to someone who sees that in themselves? Because like, so I've experienced what? both ends of this. I know I've been volatile and coming from work and being annoyed. And I feel like bits of that, that what moods are going to be in when we've boiled it down, why things haven't moved. It's like sometimes you come from working in a bad mood and if you're in a good mood or a bad mood, do you know what I'm saying there? How do you work that yeah. out? That's about building a relationship with what's going on inside you a bit more and yeah. noticing, you know, that stuff like, well, when I get in a really bad mood, it can wreck the evening and it's also not good for my relationship. So what am I going to notice? What are the things that put me in a bad mood? And also, how can I get myself out? Quite a lot of the time, one of the things I talk about, this is probably going a little bit off our, off our subject, is the old brain and the new brain. Yeah. So very, very quickly, we've got an old brain, which looks after our fight, flight and freeze mechanism, uh, which we had when we lived in tribes on the plains of Africa. So we leave tribes, see a lion, we know to fight it, not a good idea, run away or to freeze and play dead and hope it doesn't see it. That's what we needed as human beings to survive. Over thousands of years, we evolved a new brain, which is at the front of the, the brain here, which is imaginative, compassionate, solution-focused, logical. It's all the stuff that arguably raised us up above the other animal. When we are angry or triggered or threatened, all of this goes dark and we act out of fight, flight or freeze. So that's when we stomp about and yell. So if you want to switch that off, the quickest way to switch that off, and I'm pointing to the back of my head here, is the front on, is to change your breathing. So lots of therapists teach their clients. So if you breathe in for three, one, and out for five, one, two, three, four, five, for about a minute, you change the oxygen levels in your body, you introduce calming chemicals that switches off the old brain and it switches on the new brain. If you just do that for a, a minute or two, in for three out for five, some people imagine breathing in a colour, breathing in silver, breathing out grey. If you're a visual person, sometimes that works. But a lot of people, it's just the numbers, three, five. It gets you to a place where you can start to observe yourself. When you're in the throes of being angry or pissed off, we're not observing ourselves. Once you think, I've got angry feelings, then we know we're observing ourselves. What am I going to do about it? Am I going to go for a run? Am I just going to do a bit of three, five breathing before I put my key in the lock? It gives us choices. You know, we've got an observing track on the brain as well as a feeling one, and we need to contact our observing track a bit more often. That was really helpful, that. Thank you. That was really helpful. Can I ask you another question as well? Of course. <laughs> Something came up in my head before. Everyone's different, and I get this, and I pick up the Metro, and it's like, our sex life. Might, have you, I don't know if you, you read the Metro. And you go into the bit where, like, so, like a, an upcoming author writes about their sex life. It's in graphic detail. And I'm like, I didn't really need to know that. How often should we be having sex? <laughs> well, I would say 
have it as frequently as works for you and your partner. What if there's and, a difference? Ah, well, then that's what if really... one person wants it all the time and the other person has just got stuff to do? Yeah. Just write this well, down. Because, <laughs> <laughs> initially, when you first get together, both of you want it all the time, and that's part of the bonding process. If there's then a mismatch, which is incredibly common, often the person who wants it all the time hasn't learned other ways to connect. So a lot of people want to connect with their partner and the only way they can think of connecting is through having sex with them. There used to be a saying in sex therapy, which is now probably not very PC, but I'll, I'll share it with you because it sort of explains what it is, which is that women want sex when they feel close. Men want sex in order to feel close. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that's not just, I think to gender it's probably wrong. I think it's some people yeah. want sex. Yeah feel close and some people want to feel close in order to have sex because I work with lots of men who want to feel close in order to have sex actually once you understand that that's helpful but if there's a mismatch and especially occasionally I work with people who I say are sex addicts which is they use sex to change their internal world they feel pissed off they want to have sex they feel lonely they want to have sex sex becomes a sort of distraction from the other things that are happening in their lives that's an extreme, and there's all sorts of specific ways of working with that. If it's just within a relationship, which is one person would like to have sex every day and the other person wants sex once a week, then it's about negotiation and compromise and also saying, well, what else can we do? I genuinely have a pile of work and I can't have sex with you, but you want to feel close. Is there another way we can feel close? And let's, let's do that. There you go. Any other questions, Graham? Or um... just finishing my notes. On yeah, <laughs> I'll let you type that up. Um... It's the old question, though, isn't it? Lots of people think that about themselves. Are we having sex enough? Because we we are led to believe by people having sex every day. I can tell you as a gay man that the type of sex I'm having sometimes it's just not practical to have that kind of sex every day. So <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. good to hear these sort of like. Often we are just looking for a sense of closeness, aren't we? There's been times when I've had a lovely afternoon with Steve, and I'm just like. That was as good as having sex, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was nice. I mean, by the overall, how you feel at the end of it, not, the, not the throes of tempin bowling or yeah. <laughs> it was a strange match. Well, absolutely, and that is as um, beneficial to your relationship as having sex. Some people have sex to kind of tick the box to think, oh, we're still having sex. That means the relationship must be all right, oh, and that is yeah. actually misleading. That is yeah. deeply misleading. Well, just before we let you go, Val, I think it is about time. Graeme, do you want do you want me to tell you what uh, Stephen said about you? Go on. Okay. We basically asked for a couple of good things and a couple of, I say negatives. I mean, that's sort of maybe doing it a little bit of injustice there. But How are you going to structure this, Johnny? Are you going to structure this as a list of bad things or are you going to give me what we, the old shit sandwich? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I spoke to Stephen and just said, right, give us one good thing, one bad thing. So this is what he said. And I quote, one great thing for sure, Graham is a perfectionist. Once he's got something on his mind and a focus in terms of relationships or work, he won't rest until it's sorted. Oh. Okay, which I think is a lovely thing. I think that's decent. One bad thing, and this is maybe where Val can offer some advice, he doesn't hold back when it comes to offloading what's on his mind, especially after a bad day, whether I'm ready to hear about it or not. Well, I've done a radio show and driven for 40 minutes home sometimes. I can't wait to get home. And then I get in and I'm like, I think this is interesting because you basically more or less said that earlier on in this chat saying the M6 has been absolute chaos to get home. This person's wound me up today. Blah, 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 blah. I need to work on that. Is this what you would say, Val, if Stephen is 
having a bite to eat, he's cooking, he's got the starter ready to go in 10 minutes, then actually <laughs> there's a lot of negativity around the yeah. fact that he might have been there for 40 minutes preparing a meal mm-hmm. and the door bursts open and stuff. And out of seven years, I reckon that's not a bad place to be if that's, you know, the worst thing that's coming out of your, your fella's mouth. It Can is be easily though. changed. It's an, it, honestly, it's such a common issue with couples. Mm. It's, it's what I call the, um, the six o'clock crisis. I mean, whether it's six o'clock or whether it's eight o'clock, right, whenever somebody comes to work. Yeah. And it's because there's a sense of how do we make the adjustment? Someone's really pleased to see you, but you're still kind of discharging what's going on for you during the day. I, I suggest people do is they have like a five or 10 minute window when they come in and they don't immediately engage. So some of my clients will go upstairs, change their clothes, have a quick shower, whatever it is, put on their home clothes, <laughs> come down. It's like, hi, big hug, lovely to see you. I do this. Um, okay. By the way, the M6 was murder. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll go, I'll find myself, I'll stop myself. My yeah. mother's like this. So I'm like, this. I come in and do that. And I go, I'm going to shut up. And he goes, go and have a shower. I'll go have a lovely shower, That's come it. down all clean, all my hair, all wet. I'll be like, ah, good evening. Good evening, Steve. Exactly. I'm Good like evening. <laughs> so the next step is to Let's say, begin. hi, I'm not going to say a word till I've had my shower. And being disciplined enough not to say a word, to literally go, all right, as much as you might want to go, eh, you've just got to go, right, shut up. Do I'm the out three, of five breathing, Graham. Three, five breathing before you put your key in the door and you'll be able to do it. Now, Maybe just ask. bear in mind that Val has got a client real soon. So just pick the nice ones. That's mm-hmm. what I'd say. <laughs> I've got three good and three bad. Would you like them all? Have we got time for them all? Are you okay for two minutes, Val? I'm good. I'm good for time. Okay. okay. I was hoping what? you would have said I had to go then. <laughs> Sorry. On the plus point, this is from Melissa. He's so thoughtful. Even just the little things, like buying me an avocado from the shop so I have one in for breakfast, even though he doesn't really know what one is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. Him. There's a bad one. He can be quite stubborn if he doesn't want to do something. Learn on a good one. He's so fun. He can always cheer me up and he makes me laugh. So we've got a nice poo sandwich there. What are your thoughts? Okay. I'm definitely stubborn. I know that. I get to the point where, and I don't know, Val, if you've ever had this, but sometimes if I don't really think about doing something, it tends to not register 100% in my brain. And then I'll be like, oh, because it's almost been written off before it's even been talked about, which is probably not a good thing. And I think that's just a historic thing with me kind of going, oh, that sounds all right. Yeah. And it kind of just sort of is a generic response. And then I'll, if I've got time to think about it, I can then look into something. But I think that's a fear of not wanting to try something new. For many years, not very stu- stuck in my ways. For me to move our life to Edinburgh had a lot of people going, oh my God, what? Like, that's so unlike you. And within it was, that- yeah, it was unlike you. Yeah, and I think Graeme, who's known me for longer than Melissa has, it was very much, this was the four walls and, you know, the, the four walls of my life or the area I would live, work, best, recuperate, go on holiday to the same places. I think that sometimes is probably where that stubbornness might come from. Well, I think it's very perceptive of you, Johnny, to realise that stubbornness is coming from anxiety. Right. And when we're anxious, we try and control things and kind of stay within, you know, quite limited boundaries. And once you acknowledge that it's not a character trait to be that is permanently part of you, you know, oh, I'm just stubborn. That's just the way I am. But if you reframe that, which is a phrase that we often use in counselling or therapy, which is, well, let's just look at it differently. Supposing we were to say, I am anxious about trying new things. 
So what do I need to do to reduce my anxiety? I probably need more information. Information is a great thing for reducing anxiety. I probably need to feel I've got a bit more control. These are all things that are easy and possible. So, so actually, reframe that stubbornness. It's not, that's not a permanent part of you, setting you forever. But you can acknowledge, you know, back to the observing self, I do get anxious about new things. And that's fine. Lots of people do. It's really common. But I don't want to be paralysed by that. I want to be open to new, new choices. And that's what you clearly overcame in order to come to Edinburgh. Overcoming just like joining a gym. And just hearing a little bit of someone turned around and said, I've done, I've done about four, four sessions in about five weeks. Both Melissa said, because sometimes she joins me on some of these sessions we do when we do a big boot camp. Uh, and there could be four people, there could be 30 people doing it. It just depends on what's going on. One of the guys had turned around and said, you know what? You can tell your fitness has well improved over the last month. And I just felt elated hearing that because I was like, oh my God, hard work is paying off. Mm-hmm. And again, I guess that comes back to what you were saying before, Graham, in terms of that, you know, servicing elements of something where you've done something or you've put a bit of effort in and actually someone has, has noticed it was, it mm-hmm. was great. But Melissa, just to be looking over going, do you know what? Your squats are great. You just probably need your back up a little bit straighter. Tiny things. I'm using, a, you know, the fitness as an example. Mm. But yeah, you know, sometimes I've never really wanted to kind of go, yeah, maybe I am a bit anxious or things like that. It's not um, a manly thing to want to turn around and admit, you know. Well, I mean, anxiety, I think if we just reframe the idea of anxiety, it was initially, it's for our survival. You know, as human mm. beings, we have to be cautious about new things. There are some things that are worthy of that. And there are some things that we are, our unconscious is being a bit overhelpful. And one of the great ways of overcoming anxiety is exercise. So that's the yep. double winner. Well, Val, on that positive note. Oh, he cleans um, the house and cooks, he's the cleaner. There's another positive one. So you oh, yeah. Do you know what? I'm test. There you go. I am available, Val. I can come around and uh, just see a little bit of cleaning. If it all goes to pot with podcasts, give us a Henry to Hoover and I'll be, uh, I'll be away. <laughs> I've had some of my best ideas in my career with a Hoover in one hand. I promise you I'd switch with, off. With Henry in one hand, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be missing and on that note, yeah, no, that could be the title of your next book. <laughs> for more information on double Val, the budget double, double the budget yes <laughs> double the problems <laughs> um, it's valsampson.co.uk where you can find out more about Val's thank work thank you Val and, appreciate um, that anything which is really uh, give you that little bit of help and advice and again like you say it's okay to actually reach out to someone like Val get some help and advice and there's tons on Val's website it's valsampson.co.uk Val on that lovely note Thank you so much for being our relationship expert. Thank you. Summer Refreshed with Graham Smith and Johnny. So there we go. That was our relationship expert, Val. And uh, she's absolutely lovely. And like we were saying, if you are listening to this, and hopefully that might have given you a little bit of help or advice, do I ever think, you know what? I need to talk to someone about this. And sometimes accept that the problem might just be a little bit you. (laughs) That's what I always take from these things. It's kind of me a little bit. We all have to take responsibility, I think. Yeah, then we can absolutely. all be adults, can't we? Let's move on because obviously it's a magazine podcast. That's what Summer Refreshed is all about. Are we turning Refreshing... the page, Johnny? Is this what we're doing here? Uh, we're the turning page. the page. There's a page. The page has been turned into... No, this is one... the crossword. The crossword. Oh, it's a crossword. Bats. Sorry. No, let Sorry. me go back. Let me uh, go. Sorry. Hang on. What's right four page. across? Four across. Is a well-known fashion looks collective. Oh, he's got it. He's oh, got it. Yes, we are speaking to Looks Collective now. If you're on TikTok, these guys are huge. 
basically it's pre-loved luxury fashion. We're talking high-end luxury. Not here. all the crusty old dry bum bits and bobs from the back of the cupboard. It's, uh, uh... No, it's just like, yeah, not something like yeah, someone's died in. You might hear that gag again coming up too. Yeah. And we also thought it'd be funny to ask Ben and um, his uh, his partner. I can't think of his name. How about that? Is it Joe? But you said his oh, partner no. and you made them sound like they were a little couple. Oh, and well, they're not, brother. they're brothers. Yeah. Hang on, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do this now. I <laughs> know um, oh, meet the team is not there I'll meet the team it's loading if it's Joe after all this time it is Joe is it yeah told you good and they're um, brothers yes <laughs> I'll pick that up <laughs> so we speak to Ben Gallagher and Joe Gallagher two brothers who started Lux Collective pre-loved fashion but it is of a luxury variety it is some amazing stuff the knowledge on fashion and what goes behind you know, buying a bag from Hermes or in terms of a sneaker drop or anything like that. These guys are absolutely amazing. And we kind of spoke to them just to get a little bit of knowledge and background information about the company and what has turned into a huge success just before COVID kind of took hold, kind of used that period and have just gone from strength to strength from basically selling stuff from the mum and dad's spare room to actually now having a huge warehouse and a business that is doing extremely well. So this is what happened when we caught up with Lux Collective. Summer Refreshed. So it is Summer Refreshed. We are joined by two absolute legends. I'm going to give you some facts, Graham. You ready for this? Go on. Back me up, Johnny. Lux Collective, the company, and we're going to speak to Ben and Joe in a second or two, buys and sells pre-loved women's wear and accessories. Both of the lads are very early 20s, 141,000 followers and counting on Instagram. Huge on TikTok with 866,000 and counting, 23 million likes. We buy and sell pre-loved designer women's wear. So it's all like luxury items. So like your Louis Vuitton, your Chanel, your Hermes, Balenciaga, brands like that. So what would happen is, just the public, everyday people would contact us. They want to sell something and then we would give them a quote and then they'd send it into us and then we'd pay them the same day. Um, so it's a bit like we buy any car, but for luxury fashion. I was just about to say, is it? it's a bit like we buy any car.com, but for nice clothes, isn't it? Exactly. And without exactly. Philip Schofield. <laughs> so you guys have been around since 2018. Am I right in saying that's when the business kicked off? Yeah, that's when we, that's when we originally started. That was the starting point. I'd say it really kicked off in, say, 2020. 2020, 2021. Yeah. Through lockdown. Yeah, so we used to have a shop pre-lockdown, and then we went into lockdown, and then the first month we probably lost about 95% of business, and then it grew from basically we got shoved back and then it made us grow even more, if that makes sense. Where where was you? Like you said, you were operating out um, your mum and dad's house at one point. Where's that? Whereabouts in Liverpool? Uh, in Formby. Um, yeah, yeah. So Where was the shop had... up there as well? No, so the shop was in Bootle. It was more of like an office space, like warehouse. Like it was a big warehouse and then you have office spaces in there. Exactly. We, we were growing, to be fair. So we were, we had one office and then we kept on knocking through because like they were only small offices. So we knocked through to the next one. And then we grew a bit more and then we knocked through to the next one, like knocking the walls down. You did buy them and rent them first. You didn't just like knock down walls. <laughs> <laughs> just, keep, just keep going. Yeah, and then that was it. And then because when we went into lockdown, we, we couldn't, we couldn't like, we couldn't see our customers. So we like, well, I focused solely on doing TikTok videos. So I would do loads of videos every day, like for loads and loads of months, like on like months on end. And Joe would be in the garden, like cleaning shoes because the weather was so good in yeah. that first lockdown. So all Joe would be doing is cleaning the stock that we're getting in. And I would just be creating the videos and get like getting the stock in. So we kind of saw it. It's like when it was just us doing the business, 
I will get the stock in and Joe will get the stock out. It was funny as well because we had to find places in the house that was like the pictures would be nice to put on Instagram. Yeah. So as you can imagine, Where it's, did not, you it's not that many. To be honest, it was on the kitchen floor, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the kitchen floor. And because of the way that like the couch was, the metal legs were, it actually made the pictures look really good, like the way we placed them on them. In Liverpool, like, it's like a massive trend-based city and a lot of like clothing companies that you see who are quite big now, they always started in capturing like the Liverpool market because it's a it's a quick way to get a lot of customers. The, the time we started, there was loads of menswear pages on Instagram. So like you'd see like loads of reselling pre-loved menswear. And like I went to Joe just one day. I was like, Joe, do you know all these pre-loved menswear pages on Instagram? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He was like, well, why don't we do one? But not menswear, like do women's wear. Because there's not one single women's wear one. And like without Joe, like any hesitation straight away, Joe, Joe was just like, yeah, let's do it. And that was literally how we started. There was no real massive thought into it. It was like loads of people are doing that, but no one's doing this of that. And it, that's how it started. Is it harder to authenticate women's wear? Do you think is that why people sort of took a bit of a sort of put it to the back burner? Because it, it's yeah. almost like there's a load of fakes doing the rounds out there. I wouldn't say so. I think the only at the beginning when we first started, I said to Ben, the hardest thing to break was doing men's wear. You could see that lads and men weren't bothered about like buying second hand, like they were happy to just buy it because it's cheaper and it's still in good condition. So they, they didn't have it. They weren't bothered about it. But with women, you could really tell that there was a stigma that like pre-owned or it's been used before. It's going to be, it's not going to be nice. It's going to be dirty. So I said to Ben at the beginning, oh, the hardest thing is going to be to break the stigma of it being used stuff, not being like fit for wear, not being nice. But I was like, as soon as we break that, then it's going it's gonna to snowball. But especially around women though, because I think there was like, it's like a tendency for, or we notice like a tendency for women to be like, like, ooh, I don't want that. It's, it's, it's been worn before. Because and at the very beginning, we used to have customers who'd buy stuff off us and then they'd say, please don't like advertise it as sold or don't tell anyone that I've bought it because I don't want people knowing. So then we've gone from that people asking us that. So obviously that's what we do because the customer wanted to now the customer actually post on the stories when they bought from us and they're actually proud to buy from us now, which is a big achievement. Why is that? What's happened there then? Uh, I think the brand as a whole, Lux Collective, is kind of like a cool brand and like very relatable, I think, because on TikTok especially, like we've acquired a lot of followers and people want to be kind of associated with us. Yeah, so we built a good community. People want to know, people want their friends, like social currency, like they want their friends to know that they've shopped with us. Um, And then I think also like the sustainability aspect of it, like people want, again, social currency and being sustainable. Like you gain a mass amount of social currency and promoting that you are um, sustainable. Obviously, our business model is sustainable. It's a good way to promote it for yourself. And a big thing is they do actually save a lot of money as well. Yeah. And they're still getting what they want in terms of that designer of it going after a Gucci or Balenciaga. They're still yeah. getting that item, A, cheaper, and B, like you say, you look at Love Island this year and how much to push to be sustainable and not having that fast fashion that actually it was exactly. never going to be sustainable. It was always going to go bang at some stage. Yeah. It's just been at the right place at the right time. Do you remember isn't people it, actually... used to look at um, like pre-owned stuff in charity shops and the gag was always someone's nan's died in that. You know what I mean? Like you have successfully managed to like, <laughs> you have successfully managed to dismantle that. We've never had that one, like. But, um, but everyone loves that now. Like even like thrifting and going into charity shops. People like going into charity shops and yeah. getting good bargains because they know that they can be had. And I think like trends from back in the day. So like Y two K fashion is massive. And where would you find Y two K fashion in in the charity shop? True. 
So like, I was saying this to Johnny earlier, by the way, about Y2K stuff coming back in. The 90s is sort of on the way out, isn't it? And people are moving back into the early noughties, so we're getting out the boot-cut jeans again, are we? The Y2K stuff's so cool, but you're also seeing, like, new stuff now. So, like, Balenciaga's just done a massive campaign. A lot of their stuff is inspired from the Y2K stuff, so it's, like, modern Y2K stuff, if that makes sense. Like, it's a boss style, like, I honestly love it. Yeah, because obviously I deal with getting the bags in, so I talk to the customers when they've got stuff to sell. Especially Louis Vuitton Y2K stuff. It's, yeah. It's very, very cool. And we're getting off the dollar. Because it's very like Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton era from when they yeah. were like first up. They're, they're still famous now and they're still very culturally relevant now. So it's very cool to like see old pictures of them wearing it and we've got it in and we're selling it now. And it's like yeah. some bags we get in now are 20, 30 years old and they're yeah. still in immaculate condition. Some of the bags are, are older than 95% of our stuff. Because we're very young. <laughs> Oh my god! So Literally an old bag. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good. So it's good. It's interesting to see. And when bags come in, when it's on the birthdays, because on Louis Vuitton, on the date code, you read when the month they were born. So the month and the year. If you read the code, it tells you the month and the year they were made. So they get excited when it was made on the date they the date they were born. Yeah. <laughs> You've got some. I had a look on your website before, and it's got to be said, I've been in the market for wellies recently. Sounds a bit mad because I went to Glastonbury. So I had a little look on your website and there's a, there is a thriving wellie-based market at the moment. I don't know why that is, but another cool fact about wellies and also suitcases at the moment, they're the highest grossing things on eBay at the moment. So like the, the most things searched for on eBay are wellies and suitcases. I did see some ones on there that were about 500 quid on your site, I'm sure of it. Is that sound about right? Balenciaga wellies for 500 quid. Yeah, yeah. I was like, Rock wellies. That's because of Kanye West. That was it, yeah. And- Balenciaga and Croc did the collaboration and they brought them wellies out and I think they retail for about seven fifty. Do you think, guys, obviously when you get something like that and you go, okay, this is, do you kind of look at it and go, hey, you know, we can put a bit of a markup on this, absolutely, these will fly, knowing how important the social media side of the business is, do you just kind of think this is genius? We know when you see something like this that going back to a bag, which has been Paris Hilton would have had well back in the day of, of, of you know, the, the early sort of, 2000s to, to maybe current collaboration could it and go right this is going to send our socials wild things that work on social media there's a lot of different things but for product-based information it's like news so for us it would be like brand new products but obviously because we deal in the pre-loved industry like you said there johnny like 18 months ago if we get it 18 months after something like that that's old news now no one wants to know that it's not like, oh, if we get that in, it will bang with the socials. Like, yeah, it'll be cool. It'll probably get a bit, bit more interaction than usual. Like, that's why we take, took a different approach of our socials instead of the product-based content. If we focus on product-based content, our socials wouldn't perform as well. So what we've tried to do with our socials is kind of like create community through education, entertainment, and trends in terms of like how we deal on TikTok. Like, Instagram's a very hard platform to grow on with just using products. So basically, that's a long-winded way of saying <laughs> product content for us doesn't work too well, and it would it like one from ages ago because like a Y2K bag that Kim Kardashian wore twenty years ago or fifteen years ago, it might not be everyone's cup of tea. A lot of the time, it's not. It's only those people who are into that type of fashion. You know, with, with TikTok and stuff, how important that is. Do, do you guys get like I sort of got myself hooked into watching some of the the elements of what the business is like when you'd have silliness going on when uh, someone sent you some jelly beans with a package and Ben I think you were literally being sick eating the jelly beans or having various you know staff almost like showing off staff morale it doesn't feel like it's forced it just happens to be you kind of get a sense that the business you know on the front facing element of the business we know what it's about it's designer it's luxury it's high end we know what you're going to get 
but behind the scenes as well, it does seem very chilled. Is it a case of just trying to get that balance right? Yeah, I would say we kind of want to build like a chilled culture and like a, a place that we're happy to go because we've had jobs before and we've worked in places where we're like, we don't like being here and we don't want anyone to turn up and not wanting to, not wanting to work or not being happy in the workplace. So it's very important to like get everyone involved put people in the right positions that they will thrive in because if they're doing something they don't enjoy, they're not going to do well. Obviously, we're a very young, like we touched on before, we're a very young company. I think Joe's probably the oldest out of everyone. He's only 27. I think the youngest is 19 as well. So like, it's a, we're, we're all around the same generation. We all buzz off the same stuff. I remember being in jobs beforehand and like you try and explain stuff to people or you try and like buzz off each other and like there was just nothing, nothing, nothing getting back. <laughs> no, getting nothing back. So you deal with like premium stuff, obviously, is the top end of the market. But you're you're obviously buying from normal people who've got stuff to sell. And I was thinking like, have you ever seen the Antiques Roadshow when someone comes in and they go, oh, this is a Ming vase, it's 15,000 years old and they think it's worth a fortune. And then they go, yeah. this is worth 50 quid, it's shit. So does that ever happen to you? Like someone tries to flog you something and it turns out it's absolutely rank, stinks, got to send it back. What's the like, What's um, the worst thing you've been sent? And um, We have had a few things before which have been quite funny where like people have just like forgotten stuff in pockets when they've sent it in. Or like, um, <laughs> like there's been what? like underwear, underwear and all sorts of stuff like that. In pockets? Socks. It just yeah. like in the box. Like in oh, few right. boxes. Or in the box. I thought someone yeah, wrote like yeah. a pair of knickers in their pockets or something. Like, something weird there. Something's gone on there. Have you sent it back after you've snicked it? Or you just like, um... And I'll stop sending it. It's all right. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Graham will apologise for sending his underwear to you, gents. I, I did say it was a little bit unprofessional. You said it was a woman's underwear brand. and they did say that. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, you've got a few of those. Completely thumbs, right. You've you? got me there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, and do you just get in touch or do you, are they ashamed? Someone ringing going... Hiya guys, yeah, just in regards to your item. Oh, how much has it gone for? We'll get to that in a minute, but there's a pair of old drawers <laughs> in the pocket here, guys. Doing a TikTok series at the moment, like we haven't posted it yet, but um, like a series of like funny stuff that we get sent in. So the other day, like a pregnancy test came in as well, but we're building all the stuff up and we're going to be posting it on TikTok when when we get like a big batch together. So that'll be a good, like you said, it was it used? The, no, the... the <laughs> it was the, sealed, the, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see that though because like every bag and every item like has a story and a message yeah. about it so it's like that girl was obviously in her last like, in her last days of having this bag she was she was she was trying to find out if she was she was stressed you can make Thinking, i better bag. sell it i need to buy some pants <laughs> that may be the reason yeah why she's selling the bag <laughs> and like you make up scenarios in your head and everything and it's actually pretty cool like there's like the stories behind every item sometimes people handwrite a note and like say like where this bag's been and like what the bag means to them and they're like they're sad nice. to seeing it go, but hoping it goes to like an, um, a nice new home that will get wear out of it. Tell you what they're using the money for. Yeah, like, oh yeah, like when we we've um, bought like loads off an off a person before, and they were they were using the money to take the mum on a cruise because it was a seventieth birthday, or something like that. Like that was like that was dead nice. So heartwarming that to be fair. I never thought we'd then we'd sort of go down that angle. You don't think <laughs> no, you like don't this yeah. area of any kind of just bought from you know just. I'm not going to name drop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if it's not Mr. Paul, so I don't want to know, gents. Um, <laughs> but like, you put me off my stride now, Greg. Thanks, mate. Uh, <laughs> but looking at things like taking mums and, and family members on cruises and holidays, or maybe, you know, saving for, for a deposit on a car or a house, whatever it might be. If you don't mind me asking, and you can obviously tell me to do one, but what's the most expensive item you, you've sold over time? Has it been a chunky bit of cash for someone or you don't have to say, but... I'd say probably around five to £6,000 is like an average one we do, like a lot of Chanel. Oh, 
Like like that's like standard. Like pretty much most mo- like most months we'll we'll get bags in like that. Yeah, we're trying to get into Birkins, with yeah. Hermes bags, which are more expensive. Yeah, they they like go for 15, 20, 30 k, and they'll be interesting. They'll be good to get in. With. Are these the ones which you kind of have to make an appointment to go and even see one to buy one? Yeah. I wouldn't let yeah, anyone but... handle it. I wouldn't honestly. I'd be like, no, yeah. you just look on the internet. Yeah, they're cool. They, like we do a lot of TikToks on like the brand Hermes because it's um it's an interesting brand and like they'll have a bacon there like just on the shelf and you say, can I buy that? And they're like, they just take one off. You. No, <laughs> it's depending on which territory you're in. Depends sort of when we go to New York, you'd see things on a shelf and you'd be like, whoa, this is amazing. A collaboration between Moncler and Valentino. And then you kind of see it over here six to eight months later. Yeah. Um, depending where you are in the world depends on kind of what target stuff. But to have that kind of go in and buy these pair of shoes in any size and thinking no, because they might just think you're going to sell it on. It's just, it's like trying to get a table in a high-end restaurant. You can exactly. try and you can see that there might be spaces but actually, there's no way you're going to get in just because you're not deemed fit yeah. enough to buy that product, which protects their brand, but is equally extremely high end, isn't it? It's just a marketing technique because what does it do when you get turned away for the item that you really want? It just makes you want it even more. It's yeah. like, it, like yeah. you just want what you can't have. There's a rumor of the reason why they don't allow you to have it. So the sales assistants don't get commission on MS Birkins and MS Keddies. What the sales assistants make you do is purchase like all the little items up until like you've spent eight, ten, fifteen thousand pounds with them and then they'll go, Oh yeah, if you want a bacon you can have one now. It's kind of like getting in the exclusive club to being allowed one. The resale value on the bacons are more than the actual retail. So if you buy it buy at retail they're about eight thousand pounds and then the resale market like fifteen to twenty. Why? Uh, just because, because of the exclusivity. Yeah, the exclusivity of it. Like you can't go in and buy one right now. Because you've had to go so, through like, the process of all of the Yeah, I get you know. Okay. But I was a bit like, what? Yeah, it's confused me for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain stores where you can go in and buy them, but like it's on like the off off chance. My wife Melissa, so she's uh, did a traditional thing in terms of Nike. So if you want to buy a pair of Nike Dunks or some of the Jordans, you have to go through the process of registering, being selected to be in the process to be able to then try and buy them. And once you've got through those kind of scenarios, then you're in the queue to go. Oh, actually, oh my God, I've I've been selected. I can buy these. Yeah. Like for the first time today, it's sort of inspired. And I'm literally sat here now in my pajamas. Um, but later on, <laughs> I'm meeting a friend who's up here. I'm going to put my dunks on for the first time. And she managed to get a pair for my birthday, kept it hidden from me, didn't know. And I was like, oh my God, these are amazing. High top dunks look absolutely amazing in a kind of gray because some of the colors are a little bit crazy. Yeah. But I know she would have been waking up, setting an alarm, being at a computer, ready to go, all logged in at five to eight in the morning yeah. to let these things drop from America just to be in a chance of buying them. And there's no guarantee you're going to get them at the end of it. Do, do you think that's a way that's going to sort of go? Would, would you ever, ever consider that if there was something on your sort of shop where there was a huge demand for this set item? Would you ever consider doing that? Or do you just think it's a bit too, uh, I, I a think, bit too arty-farty? So I think that for us, like the main reason why we started the brand was to get luxury available to everyone. So we don't want it. We like, we don't want to like hold people back from getting it. We just close our website and then um, at five o'clock, we'll open our website for the drop and the first person to get it gets it. Every man for himself after that. Yeah. So like, we don't want to be like in a position where you're like, you have to meet this criteria to get it. As long as you're on our website and you've got them in your account and you can press purchase and it goes through, then the item's yours. Um, if it was Stephen Bartlett, Deborah Meaden, Duncan Ballantyne, anyone from Dragon's Den, or maybe classic Henry Ford, uh, if you want to go well back in the <laughs> day. You want to go back to the 1930s, right? Henry Ford. Well, he did start and invent the car, <laughs> didn't he? Or he made it mass-produced. Yes, there true. you go, an entrepreneur yeah. of his time. 
uh, or Richard Branson for the sake of argument. Ben, I'll start with you. I'll, I'll ask you guys individually. Who's your uh, Who's your hero? <laughs> yeah, I have I have a few, but definitely Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know whether everyone anyone's seen him, but but like not just in business, the way I am as like a human being now, he's like changed my life and like he's very. He's just made me a better person, and that's made me better in business. Well. What's his background, though? Forgive me. I've just googled him there, but I'll let them say. How long have you got? How long have you got? I know his story. He's though. a Belarusian American entrepreneur, author, speaker, and internet personality. With lots of, is this the yeah. right one? It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like a life coach. No, no, that's what he gets mistaken for. <laughs> but he's not. He's a businessman. He's got, oh, sorry, sorry, Gary. <laughs> he's got um, he's got like a multi-billion-dollar company doing um social media advertising and um loads of different stuff in the US. But he started off in his dad's liquor store in America from twenty to thirty-two. He didn't start like his own thing. He worked for his dad's, and he grew that from a five million-dollar business to a sixty million-dollar business. Um, in those twelve years, and then. Um, it was when YouTube first came out in 2004 or five, and he was the first person to create like a business type show on YouTube. And then he, he understood the importance of social media. He invested in Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. That's how he acquired his money to start his social media company, which has been going since 2012 now, I think. And he has like a few to 3,000 employees and like eight, eight different offices around the world. But yeah, he also does motivational speaking as well. But um. He's a real inspiration, and that's the main reason why we started TikTok because of five <laughs> years. I've just read he did it in five years, by the way. Did well, he do it in five that's years? That's even more impressive. Yeah, I just said on he, the, I was looking at his website when he was saying one of the first people into selling wine on the internet, basically with his dad, and yeah, just manages yeah, to smash had, it. Really clever. He had the second. It was the second ever wine store on like the www. He used Google AdWords as a way to remember when Facebook ads came out ages ago. And like the people would just like the businesses who capitalize on Facebook ads are just massive today. He was the one who um, bought wine terms on Google ads. He was buying like the word wine and red wine for like five cents, which today it's about three dollars. Wow. To have that vision though, and to think this is going to either go one way or the other, but what's a couple of cents or pence, you know, to, to make the business grow? I guess he's got nothing to lose, has he? He's really? An, he's an absolute wizard, Johnny. Yeah. He knew what was happening. He knew it. He brought out an NFT project the other day, and uh, not the other day, the other year, two years ago, like before NFTs was massive. He was the first one who brought like a mainstream NFT project out. And I think he, how much did he make in his sleep through royalties? Was it 250K in eight hours? Wow. He just made in his sleep. That's off other people selling his NFTs. Yeah, so not even him selling his own NFTs. Like, his floor price now is, like, $50,000 for, like, the cheapest cheapest NFT that he does now. By the looks of it, he's in he's in first on everything, isn't he? Any new technology, any new social media, he's like, I'll give this a go. I can see the benefits yeah. before everybody else then goes. Weird hero, like, for me, I don't think I have a hero. I think heroes are very, like, you've got to be special to be someone's hero. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to have done something very good to be able to be classed as a hero. So, I'd say I have... And impact your life as well a lot. And yeah. Like, like, for someone to be a hero. Like, Gary V's my hero because he's impacted my life a lot. Like, nothing. He, he has changed the way you... So, I'd say I have, I have more inspirations. And my my inspiration, I'd say, is... Do you know George Heaton? Do you know, represent the, the brand Ben's wearing? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, he's, he's brought... Um, the last 10 years, he's done a fashion company with his brother. So it's similar, obviously, to me and Ben. The way I work is, like you said before, Graham, is consistency. I'm a very consistent person. Like, every morning, I'll do the same thing before work. Like, I'll get up at five, go to gym for six, take the dog out, and then get into work. And I'll do that every single day. He shows you that what consistency can do, because he does what I do, but at a much better level. Like, he's an animal. He go In the gym, he's an animal. The, the brand he's produced is unbelievable. And that's just what, something that I want to aspire to be like. 
if we can do any any kind of what he's done, if we can replicate that in any way, which I think we are getting towards doing, then I'll be very, very happy. So you were saying like he's an animal in the gym, like he, he really yeah. gets things done in there. Isn't it funny there's a proper like correlation between people who can apply themselves uh, in the gym or even at high-performance sports and then they can transfer them skills across a mindset and make it work yeah. in the world of business. I've always thought that was really interesting, you know what I mean? Me and Joe are very routine-driven people, so we're both get up and go to the gym in the morning and then I'll go off to work and Joe will do his bits that he needs to get done, but it's the same stuff every morning. Why is it there's so many people who are business minded, like get up early and do like work out and do these types of things. And like you said, Graham, there, it's just exactly about having a type of mindset of uh, continuously wanting to improve yourself. It's also discipline as well. You've got to be very disciplined in like obviously decision making. And, and sacri- sacrifice yeah. is a massive thing as well. So like if you say no to something, you're saying yes to everything else. So say if you say no to going out on the night out on the Friday with your mates, you're saying yes to having a good sleep. You're saying yes to getting up early in the morning, going to the gym the next day. You're saying yes to feeling yeah. fresh. The mindset that you get from just doing these habits day in, day out, like you said before, consistency is so important and there's definitely a reason why the business is where it is at today. There's going to be people listening to you guys now and certainly we're going to come away from this, you know, feeling inspired and, and the same way you might be talking about You'll be in various people and inspirations. Uh, well, yeah, I might uh, I might text Jim, who I work with at five, and see if he fancies a bear, but that might be the only thing. I have started, though, jokes aside, I have started doing a boot camp. Good. Um, Outdoors, isn't so it? every Saturday, and I haven't really done exercise like that. I swear down, and you're out and about, and it's an hour's worth of exercise. There was a point during the exercise on the first week when the guy said, well, that's the warm-up done, which I thought it was a joke, and clearly it wasn't um, after 20 minutes. Followed by, uh, he was asking uh, what you're going to do for lunch. And I said that I'm going to order a wheelchair, um, <laughs> which, because uh, I just could not move. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. And I've actually, I felt so, so good. And for the first time, bear in mind, I'm not long into this new job and this whole sort of podcasting, you know, world I've, I've got myself involved with for, for at least the next sort of 12 months. I didn't think of work or anything else once during those two hours you didn't have so your phone I on you any- and that's critical as well isn't it then people are going yeah, train and they're like that on the phone like put it down put it over there yeah. leave it for 30 minutes and just do your thing you know and yeah. I only kind of get that sort of switch off from doing that or hoovering up yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only other thing it's if I if I tidy up my I have some of my best ideas <laughs> yeah it's also like a form of meditation as well when you're exercising like you said there like you didn't think of work once like obviously because we work is on our on our minds like 24 7 but people don't get that as much anymore do they they don't sit there doing nothing and letting their brain yeah. process that they're on Literally. social media all the time it's overstimulating You're, if you ever try and meditate like i try often but it's very hard for me because my brain's always buzzing that's why i like the gym so much because I, I do tend to like chill out then but like if you try and sit on your bed and think of nothing for like 10 20 minutes it's so hard and if you actually think about how buzzing your brain is in those 10, 20 minutes. That is how it is all day. You're just getting distracted by things that you're doing. Like if you're doing an email, if you're speaking to other people, if you're doing like a task, like your brain is like, like there's so many like messages and things buzzing through it all day. It's actually crazy. Like that, like just chill out period is so, so important just to like take like pressure off and just relax. Your phones must be popping off. Like, like you must have yeah. to just like leave it there for an hour. When you're coming from work, go, I'm going to put it by the front door. Mate, man who's always on his, was always on his phone now goes, leave that by the front door. And he's so much more happy that he's not getting bombarded with messages and no updates about his business and stuff like that. Surely, do, do you feel the same? I think in the morning, so like we get up early, so we get up at five 
and we know no one's going to be on their phones at five. So we're like, we don't need to be on, like, we don't need to look at our phones. And we'll go to the gym. We're not going to be on our phones in the gym to work now. We'll get in the office yeah. where we wake up until five, six, seven, whatever. And then when we're at home, eat tea and go to bed because we're getting up at five. We need that. Well, I need specifically about nine or ten hours. Yeah, so, and then reading as well. As soon as we get in, I just read instead of going on my phone. So I find it quite hard in work. I'm always on my phone, but when I get home, I'm, I like I don't really look at my phone really. What are you reading at the moment? That was interesting. I didn't expect you to say that. No, uh, how to win friends and influence people. So I try and read it like once every six months. Like keep on top. Okay, of it. just to keep. Uh, it's a very good book if you've not read it. Oh, it's so sick. I haven't read it. No, <laughs> it's only like two hundred pages, two hundred fifty pages as well. So you get through it rapid, and you get through the chapters dead quick, and you get so much benefit out of it. It's so good. I'm gonna have a look at that then. I'm gonna see if I can. So it sounds like you semi memorized it, and you're using it in your life as well. Yeah, of course, definitely. Even if you're not in business, it's just as a person, like. Helps you understand how to deal with certain types of people. Your success is directly correlated with your ability to deal with people. And that's like the main message. But yeah, it's class. I'd recommend it. (laughs) Some people naturally are very good at doing it. Yeah. When you, if you read it, you might be like, I know a couple of friends who are actually naturally good at doing what I've read. And it's like, you might read it and be like, I'm actually good at that anyway. But then you understand as to why it's effective and why it's really interesting. There's a lot of Henry Ford quotes in there. Wasn't yeah. big on choice though, have- Henry Ford, was he? He said you can have any any car you want off this production line, but they're all they're all the colour black, so you can have a black car <laughs> and that's it. I'm gonna put you on the spot here now and say which member of the team. So how many how many have you got in your in your staff uh, listers um, as it stands now? How many employees have you got? Uh, I'd um, say nah. So we 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 disagree with this. So I, I like I count all like. The- <laughs> How? Is this for tax reasons? <laughs> Has anyone seen Dave? He went to the toilet last Friday. Has anyone seen him? Not him. Nah, it's just because we have a few people that aren't like full time. They just come in like one day a week. But like they still like because it, it's more for my side. It's more like content creation. So I'm like, like that. So but like full time, it's like 10, 11, then part time two or three. So it's about including me and Joe, about 14, 15 together. Well, we'll open it up, including those people who are only in there, you know, for a handful of hours every week. I was going to say, which member of the team is the least fashionable? <laughs> oh, my God. In a fashion business, Johnny. You haven't had that on a podcast before. It's all right. Ben and I are friends, so we can, well, we were. Um, but you don't have to answer. You can bring in one of your members of staff and then get them to answer and fire them if you want. We'll say Ollie. We'll say Ollie. Ollie. Describe Ollie. Um, <laughs> um, a, a lovely looking lad. Um, amazing at his job. Um, he comes in. And- okay, now, now, now you've got the bits out of the way. <laughs> Go into the real in depth stuff about why you hate him. And it, it was the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, okay, I see. Yeah. The um, <laughs> sports t-shirt, sports sports shorts, and and running shoes. He's not describing you, Adrian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you described what I wear I most of the say. time there, Ron. I was like, and, and, oh, shit, it's me. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you guys. We always like to give our guests the opportunity to plug the social media. How do we find out much more about Lux Collective? Yeah, so our Instagram is Lux Collective underscore. Our YouTube is Lux Collective. Uh, and our TikTok is also Lux Collective. So, guys, thank you for that. We urge you to check out. It is a, a, a premium site for all your designer buys and sells. Uh, we, we look forward and we really touch wood that. If nothing else, I can give you all my G-star from the loft uh, to get rid of. Is that worth anything yet, yeah, that, though, Johnny? That's the thing. Is that, not in the, the, is that going in the bin or to them? Have we decided which... Which are the two? Well, the <laughs> jeans might not be worth that much, but the underwear in the pockets uh, will get an absolute... You'll be get dreaming yeah. of... Uh, 
uh, yeah, it can't be locked up. Yeah, with the it's skids included. Uh, ben and Joe from Lux Collective, thank you very much, and we wish you continued success. Boys, thank you. So that was our chat with Lux Collective. Um, I think you you owe him an apology, really, don't you? Oh yeah, for the remark about us, it's just all the crusty old dried up bits and bobs, shitty bits from from the yeah. I I shouldn't have said that, but they took it they took it very well. I think you owe them a bit of an apology as well for absolutely ratting them out um, in terms of employment rights. But again, they took it well. They did. I, uh, I don't think you've ever had a question where it's like, yeah, it looks like something that your nan's died in them clothes. <laughs> Look, I'm just sharing. Can you see here? I'm gonna try again to share the screen. Can you see? No, it hasn't come up now. Uh, well, I was just having uh, a look at them. We'll see if we can get this up on screen now. 2019, you know when you have a look at people, how they look before lockdown, for example, and everyone mm. just looked totally different. I was just looking at a picture of them there. They look like a pair of kids on that one, and there they are. Where have you gone back to get this information? Liverpool Echo. Liverpool Echo about oh, okay. two years We've ago. We've already owed them apology, rather than you going through the bins here and trying to find out <laughs> what they looked like years ago. <laughs> Proper tabloid of me. Ben and Joe Gallagher said they were unemployable, so they decided to start their own fashion business. I don't see them as unemployable. In fact, they oh. are like, aren't they? They're like little mini rich. Branson's they've got their head screwed on so much haven't they with all of the mindfulness and they're getting their like their routine and they really impressed me them too the vision those guys have got but that's sometimes what you've got to do you know as much as what we were saying there about covid they kind of use that time to, to tap into a market and make it explode and if they go into menswear as well then that's just you know you forget how successful they are yeah focusing on just one area but they've done it for that reason to be able to expand as well, uh, I think that'll just go from strength to strength. They really yeah, will. No, I, think I, I think so. And the sound as well, they're really good lads. Um, uh, so in, in a couple of weeks, and I, and I cannot wait for this, um, I'm Same. headed off to Edinburgh and we're going to be doing a special from The Fringe. I've not been to The Fringe since 2000, I'm trying to the last time I went to The Fringe was 2009 when I recorded this little wow. TV thing years ago. And we had no budget, put all the money on just the cameras and the people that we had. And we stayed in student digs where we managed to get like, you know, a student <laughs> flat. So camera yeah. memory one room I had some little crusty old audible bed that was a single bed there'd be editing in the kitchen till late there was no there was no no frills so this time around it's nice to go up again a bit more style you know because we always yeah. do things in style here at the uh, refreshing are. podcast and so I'm looking forward to that when there's been some amazing people and we're catching up when we're at the fringe with Gareth War, isn't it? Really good to chat to him, actually, the other day. Should we have a little listen to the interview? Uh, yeah, go for it. This is Gareth, and he is uh, his stand-up show is Doozy, which is at five o'clock every day. He's mid-run right now, uh, but he's on until the end of the month at The Stand, which is one of the big comedy clubs. And this is what he had to say. Oh, and uh, just before he came, do you know what? I'll let him explain it, but yeah, he was in, he was in pain. He was in pain, yeah. Where's that teaspoon? Summer Refreshed. We are pleased to welcome Mr. Gareth War to our Summer Refreshed podcast. Woo! Gareth, welcome. Thank you thank for you your so time. Much. Even more thank you, because you just told before we started recording then that you are in a bit of pain right now, and that doesn't sound very funny to people, um, but uh, just, just before you came on, what happened? Well, I've got like a hernia that I've had since I was about 17. Uh, now, the first time it ever flared up is when I was meeting my first girlfriend's parents for the first time, so I was like in pain, just being like, oh, pleasure to meet you, and all that. <laughs> And uh, then like, to what have you to done hospital. before you've met me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to make a fuss, so I didn't say anything. Then went home and told me about it, and we went straight to the hospital. They're like, yeah, you should have been here hours ago. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. But uh, yeah, it comes up every couple of months, and uh, today's the day that it decided to flare up right before I came on here with you guys. And can I say, uh, you're very lucky to have me here as a ginger person that survived the heat wave that we just had. But what so, about the sun? Do you stay out the sun at all costs? No. Because I have to. I used to be, like, I used to burn loads, and then I, I lived in Sydney for a year, 
and right. uh, I don't know, it just seemed to harden me up. There was one day I went on a golf course in Sydney with no sun cream on, and I went, well, that's me, gone. And I uh, survived gone. it, no, no, no sunburn <laughs> or anything. Yeah. I have only been living in Edinburgh for six months, and you get used to it being cloudy. And as a resident of Edinburgh, I'm sure you'll agree with that, Gareth, but when it is hot up here, my God, it is boiling. And I just kind of think it's cloudy, but it could be cloudy and 24 degrees, which means if you put a, like a jumper on, and you go round the corner to get some lunch from Sainsbury's, you are dripping in sweat by the time you get back. And I'm not ginger, so if I can't cope, this is not good. <laughs> I've lived with it now for 30 years, so I know what's going on. Johnny, if you, it's your first time in Edinburgh, you'll never have experienced the fringe venues. You know, when you go in some of them and there's no air conditioning, uh, not everybody in the audience leaves alive. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense. So Gareth is, you are actually an Edinburgh resident as well, aren't you? You were yes. born in Edinburgh, Gareth. So, One of um, the few people actually from Edinburgh that lives here. Just English, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Or, it's basically Little London. Am I right in saying that when the Fringe is on, that like locally people hate it, or is that just sort of a horrible, vicious rumour, what's been, what you just assume because you've, that's what you hear when you're not from Edinburgh? Well, I'm not going to lie to you and say that everyone loves it, because there's definitely people out there that absolutely hate the festival, and uh, they're, they're fairly vocal about it, but no, I think most of the city enjoy it. I think it's maybe... Like about a 60-40 split, 6% love it. And like uh, I think particularly this year when um, we've not had uh, the festival for the last few years, I think people are going to be more excited about it again for sure. Yeah. But there is the, the odd grumpy person. But I mean, that's Scottish as being upset with everything really. <laughs> You've got a new show. It's called Doozy, a follow-up to your previous shows, Honestly and Oh Boy and Just Me. With there not being any fringe for a few years, does this mean you've had like three years to get ready for this show? Sort of. I mean, we did a mini fringe last year. Uh, it wasn't quite the fringe, but we, you know, a lot of us done shows and it was a lot quieter than usual. But yeah, in a way, I mean, it's been hard because like the thing with writing a show is stuff's got to happen to you and nothing really happens over the did, last yeah. two years. Yeah. You could be like, oh, I was on a plane the other day because folk would be like, no, you weren't. Like, you shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> He's broke the rules with his private yeah. jet. <laughs> so like uh, there was a, yeah there was a bit of material in lockdown but there's only so much you can write about zoom quizzes and banana yeah. bread baking and stuff like that so it's been tough to like come up with material for sure what sort of thing can people expect from the show then like you said it's been tough to write but so what have you what have you come up with uh, i'm one of those people that got a dog right before lockdown hit uh timed it quite well so me too is, oh there you go what kind of dog do you get I got a Boston Terrier and found out since that he's got he's, he's got an overactive thyroid. So Boston Terriers are on fast forward anyway. We'll get a dog yeah. that's on fast forward, but then put that on fast forward. And there's my dog. And then take oh, lockdown right. where you couldn't quite socialize them like you normally could. Seems to also have some sort of ADHD as well. So that was the effect of lockdown on my dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you find it with your dog? It was great. I mean, I, I got a working cocker, so he's like full on, but I uh, yeah. got a lot of material out of him. Mainly, I say it's through him. It was mostly through my girlfriend. She um one of those people that's made a social media account for the dog. So I speak about that quite a bit because like she did it in secret. She didn't tell me about it because she knew I wouldn't like it. So <laughs> one day I just got like people you may know and it's my dog. And I was like, <laughs> I did you him. follow it? Did you follow it back? I didn't at first. I was just like, what's somebody made somebody like, <laughs> like, you know, made a fraudulent, yeah, of our dog. 
It's like uh, start getting friend requests from him and stuff on Facebook. But um, is it written in dog language? You know, I see some people. I followed some people's dogs, and then when they're talking, they do it in the dog's voice. What they imagine, so they go, "Oh, my Snugglepuff owner person, my human." And I'm like, "No, nah, don't do that." She does write as the dog, but she doesn't right. give him like the baby voice. Like that's uh, that's fine. So she'll like maybe put up a photo of him with like a, a bone or something like that, and it'll be like, "I got a new chew today," which is like. Uh, Part of the routine I talk about how just mental that is, but she's not quite the full on going like uh, I was out with my parent or whatever they. That yeah, <laughs> it's all it's so creepy that yeah. Do you ever see a post where like you've obviously took the dog out and then there's a post going that was the shittiest walk I've ever been on? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what though? One time I was out with the dog and this is like sort of lockdown time and there was a guy walking another dog and he went, "But is that Harris from Instagram?" And I was like, do you know how demoralizing it is as a stand-up comedian when your dog gets recognized before you do? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about, mate? How do you know my dog? And he was like, I follow him on Instagram, have done for ages. Well, speaking of that, so you kind of got an endorsement from the Fringe Dog, so at Fringe Dog on Twitter. Yeah. Um, this is quite a big thing, isn't it? So the Fringe Dog, unsurprisingly, there's thousands of shows. It, it, this interview now, you'll see that's the... The Fringe catalogue this year. Which yeah, it is looks like, like the Argos catalogue. It's like from the Argos catalogue from back in the day, and like the Index or the Argos catalogue. So many shows in there. The Fringe Dog has kind of gone through and gave the recommendations. No surprise that number one is a show from a New York comedian about having testicular cancer. So he's only got one ball, and obviously dogs and balls kind of go together. So you can maybe see the, the comparison there. Yes. But you made it on the Fringe Dog's list of shows to go and watch for Doozy, didn't you? Funny that you met, there's one of my friends that's doing a show. He's uh, just lost a, a testicle to cancer as well, and he's called his show D's Nut. Which is brilliant. <laughs> this is the thing. So, like, Erin Simmons, who was on one of our previous Summer Refreshed episodes, Erin's show is called Hot Wheels. Erin's got cerebral palsy. Sometimes he's obviously in a wheelchair, and he got that name from one of kind of a one-night stand he'd had, and he'd found out that was what he was saved in their phone as. Is it important to have like a, a ridiculous standout name? And don't you, um, only because I was a tiny bit confused by this, but don't you like get other people to kind of change posters of comedians uh, and put you on? Or Well, what I do is I take other people's posters and put my head on it like really badly. <laughs> like they don't really know about it. They, they just find out whenever I post it online. I had another comedian going, how many shows are you doing at the festival this year? I've seen like five different posters for different shows. And I was like... <laughs> Photoshops are so bad, I can't make them deliberately bad, but some people still fall for it, yeah. <laughs> so, like, there's ones where I'm, like, I've superimposed on, like, some female comedians' heads, so, like, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing four shows, and, and one of them I've got tits now. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> How is that not obvious to you? You know, I've noticed that, like, uh, with a lot of shows on at the, more than ever, I think, at the Fringe, people sort of taking something really serious that's happened to them a really traumatic thing more than ever before and turn it into a whole show. Cancer being one thing. Is that something you've noticed as well? Or is, am I just looking at the, some really spurious places? It started a, a few years ago, that trend for sure. There was the, like comedians often have a term now where we call it the dead dad show, which is basically when you do a serious show and try and make it like funny. I think Russell Kane was the first one that did the Dead Dad show and he ended up winning the award for it that year and stuff. So I think uh, comedians are sharing a lot more and then obviously you had Hannah Gadsby doing The Net, which was like yeah, phenomenal all yeah. over the world. So they are like quite damaged. The amount of my friends, like they're comics and something terrible happens to them and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And they're like, hey, it's going to be a good show though, isn't it? Like, <laughs> they, 
crazy now. Like anytime anything bad happens, they go, oh, well, you know, at least they'll get some good material out of it. I think with like Billy Connolly, who, you know, I imagine being Scottish and a comedian, someone like Billy Connolly is just like a a hero and and untouchable. Um, But you hear him and he's he's often sort of says on these documentaries more so than the stand-up performances. And particularly now, he's he's a little bit, you know, slower and he's, he's aged over the years. But he just loves life and he loves learning about life talking about life and living life. And I think those sort of commandments have made him draw you in with everything. There was um, there was a, a show on BBC Scotland recently, and he was talking about how gorgeous Scotland is, how gorgeous the highlands are, and how it was like the Caribbean. And the camera pans and you see these tranquil waves and the rocks and the trees all around. And then goes, you know, it's not the Caribbean when that water hits your scrotum. And you just kind of think to yourself, you know, like that level of detail and that telling a story and stripping it back and giving you something is just something which, to me, he's just an, an absolute treasure. Is he someone untouchable in, in terms of comedy? Are you kind of honoured to be Scottish and a stand-up comedian and put yourself in that same bracket? It's, a, it's such a unique situation, Billy, because like, uh, you know, most people to get to the status that he has now... They, they have to die and Billy's still alive, which, you know, like he's still regarded and revered as a legend, like he is like somebody that is no longer with us, you know, he's like, like Sinatra or something like that of comedy. But it's, uh, it's pretty impressive what he's managed to do. And for sure, I, I take a lot of inspiration from Billy because like, like you said, just one of the best storytellers there is. And like, like Graham touched on, like uh, nothing bad really has happened to me. Like I've not really lost a pair. I've not got very sick i'm very unfortunate in that regard because i've never had something terrible happen to, me to write a show about i always look at all these people that have terrible things happen i go hey, lucky f- so i'm allowed to swear actually on the yeah. pod no it's okay you can swear it's fine okay. it's fine do you think that like do you think stand-up comedy is a good way of them people being cathartic and then like dealing with humor kind of is a way of dealing with difficult shit isn't it it's kind of like yeah for sure absolutely it's it's the it's this kind of stress release valve on the mind isn't it people appreciate that more than ever in the 70s it was like getting on stage doing a few racist gags getting off whereas now we're going into a whole different path and that's why like people getting upset at stand-up shows is always weird because like you should be able to joke about anything and it is some people's coping mechanism and if it upsets you i'm sorry but for other people it's quite healthy and that's the way they deal Mm -hmm. with it like, uh, I've got a friend called Liam who one show he did about uh, how he was an alcoholic and he quit drinking. And then his next show was about him getting married and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, you don't have to go through a big life-changing event, Liam, to write a show. You could just, you know, write some jokes or whatever. But, you know, it, it, both are right. You can write uh, stuff that's really introspective and stuff, or you can just write a silly bunch of hour-long knob gags. You know what I mean? I mean, if this hernia gets uh, even worse, then I'm I'm going to be in. Quit in <laughs> yeah, that's next year. Exactly that show, yeah. <laughs> you might be borrowing her in Simmons's Hot Wheels. So you might need to do that poster. God, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it would be a help. When you're on stage, Gareth, and like we we'll see this, and and to be honest, I feel I feel like we you know we'll definitely link to it or repost it because it's absolutely brilliant. When you were saying about the social media for the dog, and one of your most famous jokes, which just went stratospheric, was the one where you um, had a bit of audience interaction. And you find out this story about someone. I'm laughing and you're laughing because you know exactly where this is going. Yeah. But um, it was the sort of that you, you kind of got a little bit confused. Do you want to kind of summarize the story a little bit? And do, do you know at that moment when you get a story like that and you don't know where it's going to go, you go, absolutely, this is going to take me. And that's the sign <laughs> of a good comedian because yeah. you've got to think on your feet. But I'll let you sort of fill in the gaps on that. 
So I was doing a show down in London. It was at Backyard Comedy Club. And it was my first time there. So it was like, I was doing a tryout. So I wasn't getting paid for it. They just wanted to see me perform because they'd never seen me before with the, the hopes to get more weekend work with those guys. And so I've only got 10 minutes. So every minute's pretty precious during that set. And uh, I'm asking people about uh, who has a dog, who has a social media for the dog. And then there's this girl called Eva who uh, said, well, I had a dog on social media. And so when she said that, me and the rest of the room all assumed the worst for this dog and were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So I'm all, like, I'm like being like, I'm sorry for your loss and all that. Uh, what kind of dog was it? And I'm just trying to be nice. But in my head, I'm going, this is going terrible for the tryout. Like it could be going worse. I'm, I'm like I'm bringing the energy of the room down because we're all just sad about this girl's dog. And then she sort of clicks after. I reckon the clip's only two minutes, but I reckon I was talking to her for maybe four or five before she clicked. And she went, oh, the, the dog's not dead. And then like the, the release of tension in the room was just insane. <laughs> but I was so angry with her. Uh, so I started like abusing her. I was, I was, I was, I was like, fuck you for making me think your dog was. Fuck you and your shit dog, I think I said. <laughs> and then just started going off on her. And at one point I was like really horrible to her. But she laughed and I went, thank God you laughed because I was way too horrible there. So then I'm trying to get to the bottom of the story. And I'm like, so like what? what do you mean you had the dog? And she went, oh, it's just a really sad story. And she kept saying that, which is why we all thought the dog is obviously dead. But basically her and her boyfriend broke up and they couldn't keep the dog anymore. So the dog uh, now lives in Devon. So she says, oh, the dog is in Devon. I said, well, all dogs go to Devon. And that was like the little, <laughs> the little like get me out of jail free card. But I remember coming off from that gig and I was like, please tell me somebody was recording that because that whole interaction was just crazy. And yeah, the, the amount of people that thought she was a plant. And I was like, we don't do plants in comedy. It's for one. It's too expensive to hire. It's costly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing a spot for free down in London. Yeah. Like it's already expensive trip for me. I'm not going to hire some actors. And I always like the few people that commented on that video. Be like, oh, it's a plant. I, I was just quite. I took it as a compliment. I was like, I oh, love that you good. think that I'm that good an actor. Yeah, <laughs> that I could just like react that way. Do, are it's, all your shows recorded then? Because obviously, when if I was if I was a stand up comic, I'd want it all recorded so that. Exactly that. You're like, that was really good. We're recording that because then you've immediately got a show that goes straight onto the socials and can fly on there. Are you, have, you, have you been doing a lot of that? That's the game now. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit of an old soul. Like, I've, uh, I should have been filming long before this. Like, I'm only 32 and all the other comics my age have always been filming stuff. But it's something I'm trying to do a bit more now for it sure is film everything yeah. to catch those little bits of magic that happen a lot of the time. Have you seen Paul Smith, the Scouse stand-up yeah, comic? Yeah, I know Paul very well, yeah. He's flying literally off the back of those videos yeah. that just blew up, isn't he? It's almost Paul's fault, actually, if we're going to talk. I thought about you might say that. <laughs> Blame Paul, Paul. Ruined the game for the rest of us because now we've all got to do what Paul did. Uh, but no, he's done amazing. And uh, yeah, such a good dude as well. This year uh, at the Fringe, we showed it before, so the Argos kind of style catalogue yeah. uh, for the Fringe, and it's you know it, it's absolutely massive this year. Check the index. The Fringe uh, is on 5th to the 29th of August. Now, in the past, it's had an app, and the app was very good because it would tell you, if you're in a certain area, what shows were coming up. So if you were half past two and you meet any mates and you go, oh, okay, well, what's on at half past three? We've got an hour and so to kill. You can go on. It tells you something's at 20 to four. It's at a venue five minutes away. Go for it. 
the app isn't a part of it this year. Um, a few comedians and a few performers at the Fringe, particularly some of the up-and-coming acts, which obviously the Fringe, you know, gives a, a huge voice to, are a little bit upset by this. Do, do you want to sort of tell us a little bit more and how do you think it's important that this app makes a return for 2023? Yeah, this is the hot topic of the year, really, is the app. And uh, I don't really like being the voice of a lot of performers, but uh, here's my thoughts on it. Um, because, like you said, it, the people that this is going to affect, the decision not to have the app, the people that it's going to affect are the people who, uh, the, like the working class performers that come yeah. to the festival and the lower, like the, the smaller acts, the names they've maybe not heard of. Like the amount of times uh, uh, people have discovered my show by going on the What's On nearby now and they say it's 100 metres away, it starts in 10 minutes and then they just come and buy a ticket and mm. they, like that's how you get an audience. Like uh, a lot of people are quite rightly upset. I've been quite upset. I've been very fortunate that I'm from Edinburgh. The the festival doesn't cost me as much as it costs everybody else that comes up because it costs thousands and thousands of pounds to perform at the Fringe. And I don't think a lot of people realise that. And um, most people don't make money when they come to the festival. They're coming here on a real whim and I hope it goes well. The thing that was hard to take is £1.58 million pounds, uh, that was given to the Fringe has went to the four big producers that uh the guilt balloon the pleasant underbelly and assembly so they got all that money and they're now saying oh we don't have the money for a fringe app so they've given it to these big companies that do profit from the fringe whereas like smaller venues like monkey barrel and the stand haven't gotten any of that funding or like even some of the free festival stuff like pbh or laughing horse they've not got any of that funding and we're all the ones that are going to be affected by not having an app I'm thankfully in a unique position now where I don't rely on it as heavily as I used to. But if it happened in my first couple of years doing the Fringe, then it'd be a totally different festival for mm-hmm. me. So it's a real letdown. It would be totally told now that no, there's definitely not going to be an app this year, but there will be one next year. But yeah, not not really good enough um, for for performers. Seems like a step back that Glastonbury this year. That that is in a similar vein. Used to have this all singing, all dancing app. And you go, where am I? And was the next thing? And you could plan your entire five days. And we got there this year and we were like, yeah, shit. Like all of the functionality yeah. had been scaled back and it was just like really old school. And it felt like stepping back about five years when you expect things to kind of get continuously better, don't you? Yeah, and I yeah. think is someone who runs these apps or makes these apps just gone, right, the prices have gone up threefold. Has something like that gone on? I don't know. I don't really know an awful lot about apps, but when they're making that many books, like you said, there's a big chunky book. It must cost quite a bit to make. They've partnered with TikTok this year, so they know how important social media and apps yeah. are. Like, it's like very obvious that that's the way the world's going, and that's what we should be doing. This doesn't seem the year to decide. This year, the the guide is going to be entirely made of trees. It doesn't seem to be the kind <laughs> yeah, of like exactly. time to do that, does it? And it's yeah. definitely so big that you could not put this in any kind of you know your wife's handbag. You can't put it in your back pocket. This yeah. it's like it, I feel like I'm going to school if I was walking with this down the road. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're just trying to upset Greta Thunberg, so she talks about the fringe and they get PR from yeah. that or something. I, I don't know. What Go get into it's part of a bigger plan, yeah. and it's far above our pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your doozy show is on. Give it a plug for us, then, mate. So this is on at the stand, isn't it? The Stand Comedy Club, which is on York Place. It's the Stand One, which is where I done my first ever gig pretty exciting to be doing a show because that's like the stuff you dream of when you start is getting yeah, to a show yeah. in your, your hometown club 5pm every day it's a it's special to be doing an hour long show at the biggest arts festival in the world where I, you know it all kind of started for me because the stands always felt like home from home so it's pretty exciting to do that my actual first gig though this may be a good story for you is, was in Sydney I used to work as a bartender at the comedy store 
one night one of the comedians saw me writing jokes and he was like are you writing jokes do you want to jump on stage and i was like no no i'm just you know just doing it for a laugh we planned for me to go on stage on a friday night on one of my shifts uh, we waited for the manager the boss to go have a cigarette and then they just brought me up and i did five so that was my first gig like i nearly i, I nearly got fired on the spot because it was so awful like they were like you can't just jump on stage like it's a big <laughs> comedy club like I, and you're meant to be serving people drinks so I got in big trouble for that. But then um, a few years ago, I think it was 2018, I went back to Sydney and I, I'd always joked that when I came back that to the comedy club, my name was going to be up on the board for real. Like I get picked up at the airport and they've got like my little name, you know, like in the movies when they hold yeah. something up. And I'm like, oh, this is quite cool. And the guy's like, you've been here before? I was like, actually, yeah, I used to live here about 10 years ago. I was uh, I did my first gig here and uh, we drove to the comedy club and on the board it just said comedy showcase. And I was like, well, it's not my name, but I'm, I'm part of the showcase, so that still counts. And then, like, I went upstairs to the bar, started speaking to one of the barmen. I was like, you know, I, I used to work here about nine years ago. And the guy went, Phil, do you want a fucking drink or what? <laughs> like, he didn't know care at all. And then That's I was like, yeah, no. And then it can be right down, because I was building up in my head as being like, right, this is back to where it all starts. And I went, it's just another gig. Gareth, we wish you well. And also, as you're listening to this now, follow our socials at RefreshingPod. We're our Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Garrett is going to do a little bit of on-the-street activity for us. Um, just going to tease it at that because we're going to hit the streets together for about an hour and a half. And Sounds I like we're going to flash people or something like that. It does, <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna, yeah, get your, yeah, get your hernia out yeah, for the yeah. lads. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so can we get away with that? We're never going to speak again, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, Garrett's going to do some on-the-street activity for us, uh, which you'll be able to see and hear on our socials at Refreshing Pod. But for now, and the gig is selling brilliantly well, a lot of the weekend are selling out more or less aren't they there's not many tickets so it's definitely worth seeing gareth war it's doozy it's on at the fringe and you can get all the details via the website or this tremendously huge massive great big uh, copy of book. the bible uh... Uh, gareth thank you my friend for your time thank you for having me i'm gonna go lie down what a guy you wouldn't have thought he was actually in pain all the way through that i'm sure i'd like to think of us as a kind of like form of pain relief i know i made a joke just before he came on that like you sometimes need a teaspoon don't you to put your <laughs> Your hemorrhoid back up there. Well, I'd, nev- I'd never heard that. And he didn't say he had hemorrhoids. Oh, he had a hernia. He had a hernia. Oh, no. So <laughs> you've completely misconstrued. You're there, you think he's there with something at the back end. And, uh, it's, oh, it's, yeah. No, I thought that's what that is. No, I, I think a hernia can be a few things. But a hernia is, I think it's when your lungs poke through your rib cage or something. People have to go to hospital for a hernia operation, don't they? Really painful hernia. Which is definitely not a hemorrhoid. Oh, my God. I've even been for a night out with this guy and thought he was... I might have even said to him, how's your hemorrhoid? Maybe <laughs> this is a joke. And like, oh, I just got confused. A hernia occurs, this is from the NHS, when an, this is awful, how, how are we ending this? Uh, occurs when an internal part of the body pushes through a weakness in the muscle or the surrounding tissue wall. So, for example, I was saying there, it's painful, it's painful. It's not um, piles. <laughs> uh, I did, uh, oh, do you know what, I'm really quite glad I didn't see him sit on like a, you know all those like comedy inflatable cushions, cushions. yeah how's your well, pals dear i can only apologize that's why he hasn't texted me back since um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was gareth um, gareth war um he will be back in a few weeks he will so yeah so it's mid fringe now at the end of the month we will have a retrospective look back at the fringe while next episode out in two weeks is going to be a retrospective look back at the fringe we are recording this 
really close to that episode time on bank holiday. So it's kind of the last weekend of the Fringe when everything kind of, it's like a closing party weekend really mm-hmm. for shows. The city has just been absolutely besieged by loads of tourists. It, it's gone up a notch even beyond what anyone's ever thought around here of late because of the fact that it hasn't really been on for two years due to the pandemic. So it's been absolutely fantastic. And we are in a cocktail bar, which is fantastic. We're in a cocktail bar. What one we in? The- Go on, tell me. Tell me. Uh, it's the Cocktail Mafia. So if you cast your mind back oh, to episode one, nice. it's those guys. We've got a setup there. Comedians are dropping in. We've got some remote comedians dropping in as well. Uh, in particular, one called MC Hammersmith, which is a guy who does spontaneous rapping. And you don't really know what he's going to rap about until you kind of just tell him stuff, and he makes it into a rap. It's absolutely amazing. MC Hammersmith, we've got a girl called Hannah Furweather, who's going to be joining us, who's a fantastic up-and-coming comedian. Gareth Ward, who you've seen there, is going to pop in, and he is all over our socials because we took him out and about on the street as well, which is extremely funny, uh, when he was just basically stopping tourists and locals and asking them all kinds of (laughs) questions, and Gareth will be there. It'll be a really great one to listen to, a retrospective look back at The Fringe, and we'll have a little bit of inside gossip ahead of what's planned for the 2023 fringe as well. So that's two weeks for today. That. Can't wait it's for gonna that. It's going to be, be so exciting. And um, before then... And we can um, have a tab behind the bar. Oh, amazing. I'm just having a look at the bar then and the, the gallery. It does look... I mean, we knew this from when we went there the first um, the first mm. episode, but it does look incredible. And before I go to the fringe, I've got such an exciting month. I'm not trying to show off here. Um, go but on. I'm off. I'm off for a couple of weeks. I'm going to Ibiza. Oh, how long are you in the Ibiza for? 10 days. So yeah, during the little gap between episodes, I'll be in Ibiza. So whether or not I'll actually turn up uh, for the final one. It's another thing. Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) If we end up just me in a bar speaking to myself with you remotely, it would be outrageous. In the background. I'll have to make sure, you know, like one of those iPads, what like you can can control on a little remote thing going, just having you, just like your yeah. face, they're just taking you out and about around Edinburgh. Little wig on, yeah, little wig on an iPad, that'll be me. <laughs> yeah, that'll be great. On like some kind of, um, what are they called, those, um, oh, the, the, the Segway. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just like zooming about. The guy who invented that died, didn't he, when he went off the cliff with one, I think. Shut up. Yeah, there, there's a Google app before we go. That's how we need to end this episode. So how did man, I don't know what questions to ask Google. Just that. Segway inventor passing away. Oh, sure right, it's the first thing that comes cliff. up. Segway inventor, how did he die? It is a question. The millionaire owner of the Segway company died after falling from a cliff. Oh, God, he did in West Yorkshire in 2010. But was oh. he on a Segway? Yeah. How mad's that? Yeah. Oh. Anyway. Well, that's brought the mood down, hasn't it? <laughs> God rest his soul. Um, and on that... <laughs> on that bomb, I'm sorry. Do you want me to talk about me NFT all over again? <laughs> what a way to go for him and for us we'll see you in the fringe summer refreshed the edinburgh fringe festival special <laughs> two, two weeks <laughs>